Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Joey Calvez. I want to tell you guys a little bit about the Department of Metahuman Affairs. This one is a story about a team led by a retired sidekick, two felons, a failed actor from Broadway, and a reprogrammed cyborg. But their first mission is to stop the criminals who have robbed a bank, and they will have to set the world at ease. You're going to get 180 pages of entertainment action-packed awesomeness right here in the first six issues in a collected hardcover volume one all you got to do is head on over to kickstarter.com and type in the department of metahuman affairs or dma and check it out right now and now for an announcement Actor Oliver Reed, present in the mausoleum, was scheduled to open this episode as of yesterday at 1600 hours. Unfortunately, Mr. Reed has uh, locked himself inside the mausoleum with a bunch of formerly alive sailors and they have proceeded to drink for the previous 16 hours. Mr. Reed is therefore unable to open this podcast. So today we will shuffle you directly over to Brendan and Jason with this podcast's cold for screen and country. God save the queen. God save the screen. My goodness, and thank you for listening and supporting the British arts. <coughs> Was that all of a read in disguise? Because you just burped at the end. I don't know. I think it might have been. I think he may have been pulling a fast one on us. Ollie! <laughs> I, th- I, w- I thought it was strange that a newsman c- would just come to do that, but especially a 60s British newsman... Uh, yeah, and I like please newsman from now on. Newsman, that's yeah. the way well, we that's, pronounce that's it. how you called him in the day. That's when it, it was when that had a title of respect. That's right. Newsman and newswoman. <laughs> like the anonymous British person at the beginning said, this is a podcast called for Scream and Country. And he already did our closing, so I guess uh, <laughs> I guess we're done. Check us out on Twitter. Uh, no, M A C L E O D on Twitter. <laughs> I am Brendan. And I'm Jason. You are. Okay. I don't Confirmed. Think you're not Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> I hope not. Well, I, I mean, mean, there's always a chance. That couldn't possibly happen again. No. I, I, I think if that were to happen, it would happen out here in the distance. Where I am, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, uh, I'm back in the room. Okay, that was that was Daniel Day-Lewis trying to get into the building. <laughs> I, had to, I pushed him out. He pushed him out. We're good now. So. Today. We have a... Huge movie to talk about this Doozy week. Doozy of an episode. But before we get to that, Jason, we have to talk about a movie we did five weeks ago. It was a long time ago. Well, we're going to talk about it anyway. We're going right. to read some comments about women in love. Mm-mm. I know it was a while ago, Jason. It was. It was a while ago. And but how can that movie leave your mind? Uh, wish it would. <laughs> wish it would. Uh, but you know we've we've learned a lot in that time in that time away. We uh, have. We've grown as people. We've grown as people. We've. Moved boulders. We've moved Changed mountains. our legal status. Yeah. Uh, no, not yet, because this is recorded before that happened. Oh, okay. So Everything, you're, Everything's normal. <laughs> everything's normal. We're both single I'm men. still on the market. Still on the market. <laughs> Wait, <laughs> right up until the day you get right married, up, well, I mean, that's, you're actually a single man. No, absolutely. I mean, anything can happen. So yeah. that's, that's what keeps the excitement, I think, in the run-up. 
is that you never know. You really don't. The run-up is the sequel to The Go-Between that we still have to cover, by yeah, the way. It's yeah, it's a very different movie. Uh, <laughs> Leo gets the shaft again, though. For real. Yeah. Oh. It, you'd be surprised. It was, on, it was on late night, uh, uh, what is it called? Logo. Yeah, it's on late night. <laughs> Logo. Logo. Yeah. All right, let's read some comments. So uh, regarding women in love, I got to say, first of all, all these comments are overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, so, so you're the outlier. That's fine. I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll take that with a, with a, with a medal. Uh, but Ben Piper says, I've seen Ken Russell's well-known batshit crazy movies like Listomania, Tommy, and The Devils, but I've yet to see this. I'm always down for some Oliver Reed, though. The first comment you took was from somebody who hasn't actually seen the movie. I realized it after. <laughs> there was not a lot of prep this week, so uh, we'll just... We'll That's just... what we're working with, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs> All right, so Todd Lawrence says, Oh, man, such a great film. Obviously, the subject matter still has relevance, but more than just being a meditation on the nature of love and all that, what is striking in watching Women in Love now is how deeply layered and intelligent it is. I can only imagine modern audiences being put off by a film that treats its audiences like a, treats its audience like adults. We are so used to being spoon-fed by most films that we probably resent being presumed smart. That's right, Todd. We do resent being presumed smart. How Who do they think they are? Think of we're smart. We're just dumb guys watching <laughs> British movies. Now tie my shoes. <laughs> uh, Adam Pellman says, My favorite of Ken Russell's films. I've never read the source novel, but the unlikely pairing of Ken Russell and D.H. Lawrence turns out to be a surprisingly natural fit. I feel like that scene with Reed and Bates wrestling naked in front of the fire is so singular and un- unexpected it will stick in my memory forever. And it's such a, like... It- it's such an intimate scene between two men without having them actually fuck. Like, it's a, it's a very ahead of its time yeah. for showing that sort of, like, relationship and love. Like, where they're not, you know, it's not that they're, you know, a couple or anything, but they just have this deep abiding love for each other that, uh, uh, is, that dare not speak its name. What you're saying is you wanted them to fuck. Well, I mean, you know, they could have just gone all the way on that one, but you know what? Who, who am I to judge? They can live their lives the way they want. So our next one is a long one. From Mark Newfang, Mark says, Oh, good Lord, this film is bizarre, though I acknowledge it is highly intelligent and multi-layered. I watched it once because Glenda Jackson won actress for it, best actress for it, I assume. Her performance is pretty solid, but it's a weird film. I liked Carrie Snodgrass's performance in Diary of Mad Housewife. I thought that was the Medea movie. Yeah, no, <laughs> not quite. Uh, who was up against Jackson that year? Much more. Uh, there is a... Famously homoerotic, full frontal nude wrestling scene in Women in Love between Oliver Reed and Alan Bates that goes on for some time, which I found rather interesting. All in all, a film I finished watching and thought, what the fuck? LOL. I think I blogged about it. If I can find my old blog of it online, I will post a link. So please do, Mark. We'd like to hear your thoughts uh, even deeper. He did actually post a link, so if you want to take a look at that later, I'll I'll show you. You send that right over to me. I will. Uh, Our next one is, uh, last one here, from Louis Camara. Who's very verbose today. Yes. Thank he, you, Louis. Or Luis. Luis? It's yeah. spelled like Luis. Well... Like Luis Guzman. Oh, man. When's is he, he in any movies on this list? You know, I was going to, like, <laughs> laugh and say no immediately, it's but I'm possible. like, you know what? It could very well be. <laughs> we don't know. Uh, he says, I love Ken Russell in general, and The Devils, and this movie in particular... His movies are exuberant, ostentatious, and energetic, and went against the kitchen sink realism that were the norm in British films at the time. Women in Love is an intellectual film, but its sensual pleasures, the fig-eating scene and the wrestling scene, stick with me a lot more than the philosophical discussions. That fig scene will stick with me for the rest of my life. (laughs) 
And then there's a really interesting part of yourself. I have Russell's autobiography, which is a great read, and he talks about filming the wrestling scene. Alan Bates and Oliver Reed were initially gung-ho to do it, but as the day neared, they became reluctant, complaining of hurt ankles and a cold. On the day they were scheduled to shoot, they both showed up, took off their clothes, and did the scene. Apparently the night before, the body double of one of them uh, took them out and got them drunk, and they both had to go pee at the same time. This is what Ken Russell writes. This is when Ken Russell writes... They staggered off to the outside loo, giving each other mutual support, and it was much to their mutual relief that as far as their manhood was concerned, there wasn't much to choose between them. It had all been a question of size and male vanity. Having said that, it has to be admitted that one of the contestants cheated by giving nature a helping hand just before every take. Jesus. <laughs> fluffing himself for the so fucking So one of them was self-fluffing, and I think we can all agree it was Oliver Reed. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. He drank a lot. That, uh... I can't imagine it worked very well. Well, maybe that's why he felt the need to sell. That's probably why, yeah. He's going to punch it. Boom, boom, boom. So our last thing here, Jason, is uh, we compare this this film, Mm -hmm. which is number 87 on the BFI Top 100, to number 87 on the AFI Top 100, the Yanks, the Americans, the 'er ne'er-do-wells, the supporters of Donald Trump. And what did those goddamn colonists think on their list? Uh, Number 87 on their list is the 1957 film 12 Angry Men. Oh, which I've never actually seen, but I know it is a very well-regarded movie. So by default, I have to say Women in Love, but Mm -hmm. I feel like that's probably a better movie. I have seen it, and 12 Angry Men takes it in a landslide. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's it's a great movie um, about people sitting in a room talking. I know it. It's one of those movies that has so much cultural catch it that you know of it. You, you, you've seen the parodies of it over the years because isn't the whole thing like they, they get the guy off and then he goes out and commits a crime again? No, I think the whole thing is like one guy mm. thinks he holds out. They changes all their minds. Then the guy goes out and commits a crime. Oh, I didn't know about that part. Oh, maybe maybe that doesn't happen. Maybe I'm just thinking of one of the parodies. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> um, I haven't seen it. What the fuck do I know? Jason, uh, Jason's new podcast is him describing plot summaries from movies he hasn't seen. I haven't seen it. What the fuck do I know? On iTunes soon. Check it out. <laughs> You'll have to put like a bunch of stars and yep. asterisks and stuff. So, I mean, that's going to do it for this section. So now let's talk about this week's movie. It's going to be a long one, Jason. Yep. We're talking about 1985's Brazil. Strap in, folks. Here we go. Brazil. Never seen this movie, and you don't know anything about it, and you just heard that theme song, you have no fucking clue what you're in for. So Jason is saying, Halt! Pause the podcast! Watch Brazil! And in two hours and 23 minutes, you come back to us. Yeah, watch that version. And we'll talk to you. Do uh-huh. not watch the Love Conquers All version, but we'll talk about that superior, uh, later. The superior version of Yes, absolutely. Saying. The 89 minute. Great version. Well, I mean, Sid Scheinberg is the 20th century's greatest filmmaker. <laughs> oh, we got so much to go into, Jason. We're talking about... So this is number 54 on the list, Brazil. Almost smack dab in the middle. That's right. Pretty freaking close. Direct we to us from 1985, the same year that gave us Back to the Future. And the year previous to my birth. 
the year two years hence from my birth ah now you know our ages oh now you'll guess our addresses that's how it works right i'm sure they can you figure put it out ages into a database the internet's too smart who knows there's some <laughs> algorithm somewhere so i was definitely not old enough to see it when it came out i was one years old <laughs> or no i was i wasn't even born you weren't yet. even born i was two and, i was uh, probably one by the time this came out in america which we'll talk about yeah i i, I was two and, and the trailers just didn't appeal to me at the time there's not enough poop and barney that's right that's right and the intro twin cinemas weren't big on getting obscure british uh, uh weirdo terry gilliam movies so i mean at this time he's already worked with monty python extensively He's done Monty Python. The well, whole... so he, he didn't just work with Monty Python, Brendan. He was part of Monty Python. He well, wasn't. He wasn't like in a, He wasn't like Carol Cleveland or Neil Innes, where they did work with them and they were almost a part of the group. But he was part of the core membership of that group. He did not do as much on-screen stuff, certainly, but he was responsible for all the animations. Nerd alert! I fucking love that show. I saw that show. I think when I was like thirteen or fourteen the first time, and that is the absolute perfect age to see Monty Python. We're not talking about Monty Python, though. But no, I'll know. We're talking about one-sixth of Monty Python so, in Terry Gilliam. So he had done Monty Python, the Holy Grail. Holy Grail. Yeah. He had done uh, Jabberwocky. Which is, a, I, I saw that years ago, and it's a weird fucking movie, and I don't remember much about it except it being very, very dark he and did, grimy. He did Time Bandits. Awesome movie. He did the opening scene of Meaning of Life, the, the when they're on the ship. The Crimson Permanent Assurance. Right. He and then of course we get to Brazil. Straight to Brazil. Straight to Brazil. And then after this he would he did Baron Munchausen, uh, The Fisher King with Rob Williams and Jeff Bridges, Twelve Monkeys, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Brothers Grimm, Tideland, Doctor Parnassus, uh, and you know a bunch of other stuff. And of course just recently, just last year, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Which, as a quick side note. Uh, have you seen the documentary Lost in La Mancha? Yeah, he's okay. been trying to make it for like 20 years. And he finally fucking got it made. <laughs> yeah, and it opened to mi- lukewarm reviews. Yeah, so. I mean, it's it the thing. It was never going to be, it was never going to live up to the myth of it. Right. So we are talking about Brazil, Terry Gilliam, 1985. Which, it, if you've seen the Crimson Permanent Assurance, which is about a bunch of office guys that take over an office building like it's a pirate ship, yep. and then proceed to sail it around the city and attack other buildings, it's hilarious. Uh, but it le- you, you can, the aesthetic leads very much into Brazil, this office world. But anyways, yes. Yeah, so. so I want to talk about the cast here before we get into this. So we've got, just going to run through this quick because there's a lot of people we got to get through. we got Jonathan Price, so Sam Lowry, our main character. We got Kim Greist playing Jill, mm-hmm. Robert De Niro playing Harry Tuttle, which we'll talk about. Later. Rogue heating engineer. Yes, uh, Catherine Hellman, who you may know from Soap. That's the thing I know her from. I know her from uh, Who's the Boss? Yeah, yeah. and Soap too. Obviously. Playing uh, Ida Lowry, Sam's mother. Mm-hmm. Ian Holm playing Mr. Kurtzman. Which quick side note: Kurtzman. Kurtz is German for short. Oh, and he's a very short man. There you go. There you go. Uh, Bob Hoskins. I feel like he's in every episode these days. Yeah. Bob Hoskins as Spore. Michael Palin as Jack Lint. Absolutely. Peter Vaughn of Zulu Dawn as and Mr. Helpman. Game of Thrones. Well, I mean, on this show. Yeah, Zulu but Dawn. yes, he was on Zulu Dawn. Uh, Jim Broadbent yes. is back as Dr. Mm-hmm. Dr. Louis Jaffe. And the screenwriter, Charles McCune, plays Harvey Lime. He's great. Yeah. And was it Jack Purvis, the, the little person that uh, was in this movie as well? I think. Uh, he was also in Time Bandits. I don't. I think so. I think you're. I think that's. He, he plays another doctor who's in one scene and criticizes a uh, uh, Doctor Jaffe. Yeah. <laughs> so, Jason, we. I know we've got a lot to get into, so let's get through this plot as quickly as we can. I'll do my best, Brendan. This, what, uh, this is a movie I like. What is? <laughs> so I'm gonna have. Fun, so I'm at least gonna have a lot of fun talking about it. Brazil. What the fuck is this movie about? Somewhere in the 20th century, Brendan, this movie takes place, and it tells us this at the very beginning as we fly through some clouds. 
There's an explosion! We quickly learn of terrorist activity from battered TV. In an office, the murder of a fly causes its corpse to land in a teletype machine, making the name Tuttle come out as Buttle on a particular form. I like uh, you're reading it as I imagine the dude that wrote Naked Lunch would read his books. I hope so. <laughs> William Burroughs. Yes, I hope William Burroughs would read it with that kind of gumption. <laughs> the nurse said, "Doctor, <laughs> it can't be reattached." Christmas with the Buttle family. We see them sitting around the Christmas tree. Everybody's so happy. Because it's a wonderful season. This is a this is a Christmas movie. Yeah, if absolutely. Die Hard is a Christmas movie, this is a fucking. This Christmas is absolutely movie. a Christmas movie. But I also get the feeling that it might be Christmas a lot more often in this universe because it's very consumer driven. But yes. again, we'll get into that. Yeah. So Christmas with the Buttle family upstairs in the Buttle family having her own party is a, a young lady taking a smoke bath. Now, as we remember from the previous film we talked about, where a fella got out of the shower and immediately started smoking a cigar. Obviously. If you're in a movie, you got to smoke and have a bath, and so she does too. Jill, yes, Jill. Well, we don't know. We don't know. We uh, we do not know her name yet. But I mean, we'll just establish the fact. It that is, this Jill. is Jill. This is Jill. Yeah. But their days are all soon ruined, Brendan, because a bunch of government troops bust into Jill's apartment, cut a hole in the floor, and proceed to throw a a, a pole down and come down fireman style and arrest uh, Father Buttle, Mister Buttle, Mister Buttle, Archibald Buttle. Yes. Uh, I assume that's his name. I think so. Uh, so yeah, so they, they put him in like a weird straitjacket thing and a, and a government man comes in and proceeds to read him his charges. Of course, everybody in the family is completely fucking shocked and, and everybody gone nuts because it's chaos. And he's he's like, uh, he says to Mrs. Butler, he's like, okay, we're arresting your husband on these charges and blah, blah, blah. I just need you to sign this form here and sign here well, and here. And then he proceeds to rip it off and go, and there's your receipt and that's my receipt for your receipt. I don't have that exact clip, <laughs> but I do, uh, since we're on this subject right now, we're going to start to get on this bureaucratic uh, kind of subject. I can play a clip that's very similar to what we see here, and it's from a little bit later when Jill goes to the uh, to the offices to file a complaint about the wrong wrong person being arrested. Oh Just, yeah, this this is this basically gives you this is an encapsulation of the movie's kind of point of view. This is the DMV, basically. It's not the DMV. This is actually the Ministry of Information. No, but it basically is. The it's, DMV. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I want to report a wrongful arrest. You want information adjustments, different departments. I've been to information adjustments. They sent me here. They said you have a form I need to fill out. Have you got an arrest receipt? Yeah. Is it stamped? Stamped? No, no, there's no stamp on it, you see. I can't let you have the form until this is stamped. Where do I get it stamped? Information adjustments. So yeah, the father's arrested on vague charges and given a rece- and she gets a receipt and he's taken away. And then we cut, we meet Sam for the first time, but we don't actually meet him. We see his dream. Flying through the clouds. There's Sam Lowry, except he's got a wig on and a face paint and he's got wings and he's flying around like a champ. The first time in this movie where, as a first time viewer, I said, what? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Why wouldn't you say that? Mm-hmm. If you're familiar with Terry Gilliam, though, this is part for the course, this sort oh. of thing. I'm not surprised, but I'm still saying. Yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. No, but why wouldn't you? <laughs> Anybody watching this movie, I think, unless they're, <laughs> unless they're a real big Terry Gilliam fan, would be like, "What is even going on?" Yeah. And and while he's flying around in the sky, he sees an ethereal lady, and he's like, "Oh, that's my lady." And he flies, tries to fly to her, and then he wakes up, because Sam gets a call from his boss, Mister Kurtzman, played by our old friend Ian Holm, Mister Bilbo Baggins himself. Bilbo Baggins himself, late of uh, uh, the Madness of King George. Yes. He. Uh, he is a functionary in the Ministry of Information uh, for whom Sam works. And 
he he wants he, he's actually at work and he's looking for Sam and Sam's not there. He calls out to people, so he calls him and it turns out Sam is at home. And when and he's woken up, he goes, "Oh, what am I? What well, is very early?" And turns out his alarm clock is fucked up. So he like hits the alarm clock and all of a sudden it goes, "Oh shit, the electrics have gone again." Because in this universe, it's full of uh, this very retro futuristic type of technology that almost never works properly. It's a it's a it's definitely um, Terry Gilliam making you wonder. Where, when this movie takes place because yeah. it's it is yeah like you said it's a mixture of like futuristic and also archaic like why are we having why do we have typewriters <laughs> typewriter computers with weird magnifying screens and the phone that Sam has like all the phones they are kind of like the old switchboards where you have to plug in a like a like a mono cable into a specific slot yeah <laughs> it doesn't make any sense it's like over underthought over engineered kind of thing and that that is very much like an attitude that I've seen in Monty Python. The, the idea of just kind of flippantly looking at someone and saying, British engineering, eh? Like, that's sort of just the idea that nobody can make anything that works right. Right. <laughs> it's, it's a very, like, if, if John Cleese were here, he'd be getting insanely angry about it. And then he'd probably say something about black people. Or he'd uh, make some comment about the state of Britain when he lives very far away. Uh, <laughs> but that's a whole other discussion. So he so he wakes up, he goes to leave, and of course his breakfast is fucked up by the auto thing, and it dumps a bunch of coffee on his toast, and his toast is very floppy, and he does a very like Buster Keaton or yeah. you know like a very like very a like chaplain. silent film kind, yeah. chaplain kind of thing, and he's like eh, and throws it away. Anyways, he gets to work and and walks by the big statue in the hallway, which by the way says the truth will set you free. Truth shall make you free. The truth shall make you free, which, which is very it, reminiscent of the old Nazi slogan, work will make you free. Yeah, very, <laughs> um, I noted that because I was like, wow, that's like a subtle, subtly different thing from the truth shall set you free. And it's, it's, it's definitely an intentional little thing there. Yeah, and, and also given the totalitarian nature of this movie, the 1984-esque uh, uh, kind of approach it takes... You can see how the idea of the truth. Well, what is the truth? Who makes the truth? Who decides what the truth is? Ministry of Information does. Absolutely, they do. That's their job. Uh, is this where we meet Michael Palin? Uh, yeah, we see him for the first time. He's an old buddy of uh, Sam's, and they have a very jovial conversation. But while uh, Sam is having this jovial conversation with Jack, he happens to notice the computer monitor in the background, and he sees the face of the woman that he's been in love with in his dreams, and she's in the room. And it's Jill. And it's Jill. And, and who's doing what I just played? Trying, yeah. to, f- trying to file that. Uh, trying to file a wrongful arrest report. Wrongful arrest yeah. on behalf of Mrs. Buttle. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so Sam like is like I gotta go, and he like goes and looks around. He can't find her. He doesn't see her where she is. She's there, but he just can't find her. And so he goes up to work to Mr. Kurtzman. His boss, Ian Holm. His boss, but like a very put upon boss. Oh yeah, absolutely. I feel like he's he's a total like he's a weenie. He's a weenie, and like the first. Uh, glimpse I think you get of that is when he first calls for Sam he's like Sam, Sam. <clears throat> I'm looking for Sam, Sam Lowry like it's very like he like it's like oh okay they're telling us right there he's a phony it reminds me of on uh, on Are Being Served with Mr. Humphreys who, who normally talks like this picks up the phone and, uh, and would always go menswear <laughs> <laughs> So he's having a computer issue and and he needs Sam to look at it because Sam apparently is is kind of kind of smart in IT. Really, Sam is the only reason that Kurtzman has a job. I have to imagine, and and, and Sam doesn't want to leave that job, and Kurtzman is very happy about that because yeah. he wouldn't be able to do anything without him. Right. So they they dig into the computer, they look at the problem. It turns out that the uh, there's been a wrongful arrest because there was a mistake in the system, and they're both shocked by the idea that there was a mistake in the system. That uh, uh, an Archibald Buttle had been arrested when, in fact, Archibald Tuttle, with a T, 
was the one that was supposed to be arrested. Now, do they notice because Tuttle was the one that was billed, or because like I didn't I didn't quite get what happened there. Well, if you'll notice when when the teletype is going in the very beginning of the movie. Well, you th- see that there's a number of different forms that have Tuttle being printed on them. Yes, and one, one of them has, says one Buttle, could assume yeah. that only, only one of them says Buttle, right? So right. you have to assume there's a bunch of forms related to him, or other people named Tuttle, I suppose, but how many people are named Tuttle? Yeah. How many people are named Buttle? So, uh, yeah, they, they figure that out, but quick, Sam's quick to point out, and again, in, in the spirit of the movie, it's quick to point out, it's not their fault. <laughs> it's a different department's fault. Right. Uh, and we're going to see this as a recurring theme throughout the entire movie, is that every time there's a mistake... It's always a scramble to find out that uh, to make sure you you figure out a way that it wasn't your fault that it was somebody else's. It was another department. Pass the buck. Pass the buck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And at, it's at that point the curse asks Sam if he'd ever take a promotion, and Sam tells him again, "No, I, I've told you before, I'm not taking a promotion. I like this job. I like what I do. I don't want to. Yeah, I'm fine. Don't worry yeah. about it." Um, and then he's like, "Well, guess what? You've been promoted." Yeah, and we find out why. Yeah, because Sam's mother is close to Mr. Helpman, who is the head of the Ministry of Information, and uh, put in a good word for him. Sam's mother is also obsessed with plastic surgery. Yes. Uh, He actually goes to see his mother after this point, um, and she's uh, sitting in the chair getting a little bit of facial surgery or work done by Jim Broadbent, Dr. Chaffee. One of the only images, by the way, that I had seen of this film was her face getting stretched. Yeah, so so he's basically grabbing the sides of her face and stretching it out and trying to pull it back and basically doing a facelift, but with his bare hands. Yeah. (laughs) And so they have a little discussion, and she's like, well, no, look, she basically wants her to, wants him to, to be better than she thinks he is. And he doesn't have any interest. You don't in have it. any. You don't have any drive. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. And like, like many mothers, you know, it's partly concern and partly, I'm sure, some selfish desire. Now to let's go to a make restaurant. yourself look like a better mother. Yeah. Now let's go to a restaurant with all my friends and eat slop. Yeah, and that's what they do. And we meet her other friend. Uh, we, we meet the mother's friend who is a, also a surgery addict, but she's having a little less luck. It's not working quite as di- well. She has a different surgeon. Yeah, she has a different surgeon. Uh, and there's been some complications. Yes, and then her complications have complications. Complications had complications. Uh, and, of course, she has a daughter named Shirley that the, the two mothers are, are ever trying to set the two of them up. So they're, they're, so they're sitting there having dinner, and, of course, we, we, we discover that in the future uh, you have to order by number with an electronic menu, and the waiter is very insistent that you say the number, even though Sam doesn't, because he just wants a steak. <laughs> and finally he's like, number three! Yep. And just takes it. But then he brings it out, and then it's, yeah, it's not the thing that you wanted. It's scoops of what appeared to be some sort of coleslaw protein uh, arrangement. Yeah, so I guess it's just the flavor of it? Yeah, yeah. It, it, but, but it has, but it has hilariously, a it has a picture of the food it's supposed to be yeah, on a so stick. That, so that you're not thinking of your, the fact that you're eating slop, I guess? Yeah, yeah. That's in the future. It's more efficient that way, right? Sure. Uh, also, can we, t- can we mention here that this is the first time we see the gift giving? Yes. Which is the same gift every single time. It's like so much of a formality. They keep giving gifts and they're all wrapped the same and they're all executive desk toys. Yep. They're all the exact same gift. It's a little a little decision maker. And I don't know if this is like just that class of people or if this is the gift that you give people. I think this is part of the consumerist uh, uh, side of the society. It's very consumer driven and, and the idea of like a, and the idea of like a constant Christmas. And that's why I think Christmas might be more often than we think it is. I feel like it's relatively regular so that people keep buying gifts and they keep giving each other bullshit desk toys just to keep the economy going so at the restaurant while they're eating there's a bombing <laughs> a fucking bomb another bomb goes off and horrifically injures a number of people and a lot of and and nobody's really that bothered by it. nobody's really that any, anybody who's not injured is not particularly bothered by it um <laughs> my favorite is sam can't you do anything about these terrorists it's my lunch hour <laughs> yeah <laughs> 
And the waiter at one point brings out a, a screen uh, to place it behind them so they don't have to look at the injured people uh, writhing around on the floor. Right. Uh, so, of course, Sam's had just about enough of this. His tolerance is already very low for this dinner, and finally he just bails. More dreams. But this time, when he goes to see his dream lady in the dream flying around like a fool, uh, some obelisks start to pop up out of the ground, these big poles. Uh, I don't know what they're representative of, Brendan. Is it just his own bad emotions? Is it penises? I don't know. I thought I thought it was him seeing the uh, obstructions in his way. That's right. Of society. They're putting up a barrier between him and his love. Build that wall. Keep Sam Mallory from getting a girlfriend. <laughs> Although you know Donald Trump would have... I mean, that would blow his mind if he had a dream about a girl and he saw her in real life. I <laughs> Also, she's probably dead now. No, if if he's having a dream about a girl in San Relic, she's probably not even born yet. <laughs> Back at Sam's apartment, the heating is fucked, Brendan. It's fucked. It's fucked. It is hot. He has to call Central Services. It wakes him up out of his dream. Yeah. And he calls Central Services, and he gets a voice that says... Uh, that, this is uh, not a recording. This is not a recording. It's clearly a recording. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, there's nobody there to answer the phone, because they're we, over, overworked or we something. We don't take calls between 11 p.m. and 9 a.m. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, so Sam screams at it, and he's like, I'm an emergency! Yeah, that's what he does. That's what he does. But so Luckily, when, someone's been listening in. Yeah, he gets a phone call, and he picks up the phone, and uh, 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 it's the guy's like, is this Sam Lowry? He's like, yeah. And meanwhile, the guy's sneaking in behind him, because you can see the weird cell phone he's got in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and he's got a gun pointed at Sam, and Sam turns around, and of course, uh, you know, is very scared, and it turns out uh, uh, the guy is like, no. He's like... My name's Harry Tuttle. I'm a heating engineer. And this is our friend Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro. In his first appearance on the BFI list. First and only. <laughs> um, very, uh, very small part because I think he's only in three scenes. Yep. And uh, why don't, because since he is only in three scenes, he is Robert De Niro. He has such presence. Let's listen to a little bit of the scene. Please. As he's uh, fixing the uh, heating duct for Sam. As a renegade heating engineer, this is what, what he does for Sam. Just a minute. What was that business with the gun? Just a precaution, sir. Just a precaution. I've had traps set for me before now. And there are plenty of people in central services who'd love to get their hands on Harry Tubb. <laughs> are you telling me that this is illegal? Well, yes and no. Officially, only central service operators are supposed to touch the stuff. Would you hold this, please? But nowadays, with all the new rules and regulations, they can't get decent staff anymore. So they tend to turn a blind eye, as long as I'm careful. They find you if ever they could prove that I've been working on their equipment. <laughs> well, now that's a pipe of a different color. <laughs> but wouldn't it be simpler just to, you Could know, you work for... for me, please? Sorry, yes. I was saying, wouldn't it be simpler to work for central services? Ah! Ah, couldn't stand the pay. Getting warm. You couldn't what? Couldn't stand the what? Paperwork. You couldn't stand the paperwork. Listen. This whole system of yours could be on fire, and I couldn't even turn on a kitchen tap without filling out a 27B stroke six. Bloody paperwork. <laughs> I suppose one has to expect a certain amount. Why? I came into this game for the action, the excitement. Go anywhere, travel light, get in, get out, wherever there's trouble, a man alone. Now they got the whole country sectioned off. You can't make a move without a form. 
And that is basically the thesis of the film. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is crazy is that this, I think this is the only, okay, it's not the only American actor, because Catherine mm-hmm. Hellman is also an American doing a British accent, but this is the only actor, I think, doing an American accent. Yeah. Uh, no, Jill is doing it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah her, him and Jill, though, the only two in this movie. Uh, is the actress that plays Jill American, I wonder? I, I will look it up. Keep talking. I also found it uh, funny that, we, that the script is written, obviously, by a British person. Uh, uh, what was his name? She's American. Okay. What What was the guy's name? Charles McCowan. Uh, Charles McCune. McCune. So I, I just I just enjoy the word bloody coming out of uh, Robert, Robert De Niro's, De Niro's mouth yeah, yeah, in yeah. an American accent. <laughs> I did think that was funny. That made me think that they had a British person in mind for yeah. that role. But thankfully he did it. He's great. Uh, but yeah, Harry Tuttle's basically the Batman of heating a, a repair. Yes. He has a grappling hook and everything. And he got into the game for excitement, so he goes around uh, repairing stuff for people. And and uh, as you heard that clip, you heard the sound effects that were overriding it, and you just imagine the um, the actual like machinery of his wall was very Terry Gilliam, very cartoonishly dense and and chaotic and nonsensical. I feel like Terry Gilliam gets a lot of inspiration from cartoons. Oh yeah, no, there's, well there's, he he was a, he's, he's an animator. He yeah. animated all the Monty Python. There's shows, a later scene I want to bring up. But yeah. yeah, go ahead. Keep going. Absolutely. we got to get through this plot. <laughs> it's a long movie. Keep going. So he fixes it. And he doesn't charge him because he's like, you did me a favor. Yeah, there's a near, there's a, there's almost, he almost gets caught because the central services technicians, I guess, come over. Yes, they can show up. And uh, it's Bob Hoskins and another dude. And another dude. They're both very funny. They both um, have very long baseball caps. Yes. Uh, and Sam uses his knowledge of the form, the 27 stroke B or whatever it was. Yeah. He asks them for it, and they realize they don't have it. So much says, so that it sends one of them into convulsions. He sends into convulsions, yeah, the other guy. And Bob Hoskins is like, uh, Look what right. you done now. Look what you done now. <laughs> He's like, I'll be back. Yeah. And Sam, and Sam utters the line, well, I am a stickler for paperwork. Yes. <laughs> Which will come back to bite him. But yeah, he sends them out. Uh, Harry Tuttle fucks off and leaves. Yep. And, Sam uh, goes to sleep, gets up, goes back to work. And there, Kurtzman shows Sam the result of their of their investigation and the mistake. He's holding a refund check, which which Sam has never seen, and I guess Kurtzman should, has ever seen. Yeah, none of them, neither of them has seen. I guess we should play this scene. What we have to point out, though, the reason there's a refund check involved is because in this universe, when you are arrested, you are also charged the amount for your interrogation, arrest, and incarceration thereafter, or possibly uh, uh, your execution. Yeah. Uh, so you're charged for it, but. Because this was a mistake, the refund is being issued. Right. So here we go. What's that cut your hair? I'm in terrible trouble. Look at this. Look at this. It's a check. It's the refund for Tuttle. Tuttle? Buttle. I mean, buttle. It's been confusion from the word go. He's been overcharged for information retrieval procedures, and someone, somewhere, is trying to make us carry the can. Hey, can I have a look? I've never seen a refund check before. I'll bet it's Jeffries. Yes. He always believes that people should pay more for their interrogation, and B, he loathes me. We've got to get rid of it. Well, send it to somebody else. Better still, send it to Buckle. After all, it's his check. I've tried that, but look, look at this. You see, the population census has got him down as dormanted. Uh, the central collective storehouse computer has got him down as deleted. Uh, Hang on. Information retrieval has got him down as inoperative. And there's another one. Security has got him down as excised. Administration has got him down as completed. He's dead. Le- dead? 
Well, that's awful. We'll never get rid of the damn thing now. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So, but so basically, yeah, he's like, oh my god, he's dead. Oh, we'll never get rid of this check. All right, and then and then they like, well, next of kin, she doesn't have a bank account. And Sam's like, you know what? Fuck it, I'll drive it out. He'll drive it to Mrs. Buttle. He'll drive it out, and and Mr. Kurtzman is very very thankful to him for doing that because it means he doesn't have to. And this whole incident goes about as well as you would expect. And and we see Sam drive there, and we get a, a little bigger sense of what the world looks like. It's very grimy. It's very rundown. It's very, very bu- industrial. Very billboardy. Very billboardy. Uh, yeah, the highways you can't see the ground because it's just a string of billboards along each side of the highway. Yeah. And probably for better because it's a wasteland beyond the billboards. Oh yeah, it's ruined. Um, Environmental message coming through. And so he drives into where the Buttles live, and it's a. It, it looks like one of the neighborhoods from uh, Clockwork Orange. Like when they walks into that apartment building, it's all fucking messy and beat up. Like that's what it looks like. And he gets there yeah. and he gets harassed by some kids. <laughs> Or I don't know if they actually harass him. Well, he gets in there. He they goes harass his car. He tell yeah. He tells uh, Miss and he tells Mrs. Buttle like you know, there's been a mistake. Your husband and she's like she knows she knows he's dead. Yeah, because he's not saying anything. And she says, "Where's she's the body? She's almost comatose. Where's the body? Yeah. Where's the body?" And starts freaking out. Her son then comes out, comes over and attacks him. And he looks down. There's like a mirror that was broken, and he sees in a reflection. Oh, and Jill's upstairs. Mm-hmm. So he takes off. Uh, unfortunately, Jill gets away, and his car breaks down. What breaks down? It 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 explodes. Well, I thought it just broke down. Cause no, it was on fire. Oh, okay. and and he like he like waves the flames out, and then tries to jump into it and start it, and then the fucking wheels are gone. Too. Right. Okay. <laughs> the kids took his wheels. Um. So I don't know. Did, did did the kids blow the car up? Who who caused the explosion? Was it Jill? I don't know. I think I I don't know. I I'm not sure. They don't they don't really ever say. No. Um. So he does get back to the office. Do we remember how? <laughs> or does he just go back? I think he just gets back. I don't yeah. remember. A specific, they won't specific notice. Way. Yeah. <laughs> he just gets back. And this is this is where he says, like, okay, I got to find out who this Jill girl is. Yeah. Tries looking at her up on the system. Nope. Classified. Classified. You Doesn't have access. You have to be in information retrieval. But Sam has a thought. I've I got the promotion offer. And that promotion offer will put him in a position where he has access to the classified information. However, Kurtzman already signed him off to reject the promotion. Because he knew offer. he didn't want it. Yeah, but he also forged a signature. He also forged his signature. But also Sam and Fez has forged his signature. He literally did it in front of him before. With He's permission. Like, with permission, yeah, because he'd hurt his hand when he banged it on the table. Very lightly, but still hurt it really bad. Yeah. He was like <laughs> That's probably pretty loud, I bet you, for the podcast listener. I dropped my smoke. Yeah. <laughs> There's a fire now. We're dying. We're dying in here. Oh, God, the pain. Oh, it hurts so bad. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, oh here comes the here comes the licking flames. Oh, it's hurting. It's hurting up my arm. Oh, jeez. Oh, do oh, you, you look at that burn right there? I know. It's festering, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. Oh, there comes the beam down. Oh, oh, there comes the fire trucks with their hose. Oh, we're out. What's that, Mr. Officer? I have to leave? I'm sorry. We got a podcast to do. Yeah, we're already 36 minutes in and we haven't gotten through half of the movie yet. And it might not be 36 minutes for the listeners because well, I don't I'm know good. that's what I, I see. I think future Brendan might edit this, but you know, that's what we see. So if that was less than 36 minutes, you know we took some shit out. What's that? This is probably not going to be in the episode? I don't know about that, officer. This is pretty, pretty gosh this darn... This is some goddamn brilliant stuff, officer. This is gosh darn comical. This is beautiful. Are you a Terry Gilliam fan? Do you like Brazil or Baron Munchausen? They're... They, they just, they shook their heads and left. They're driving away. 
Okay, well, let's let Brendan and Jason come back okay, in here now. let's do that. Back to the podcast. Okay. What the fuck just happened? Uh, I think we had a stroke. Okay. Wow. All right, well, let's, uh, let's talk about Brazil some more. So, Sam has another dream. He's got to, well, eventually he's got to figure out the job thing, but he has another dream, and in the dream he can't find her. No. Oh. He just can't find her. And then he wakes up, because at his actual apartment, or he goes to his actual apartment, yeah. and the heating guys have shown up, and they've already torn the place apart. And they know Tuttle was there because they have the, the widget that he had put in the wall to fix the problem, the bypass. So in response to that, they're like, well, fuck you, and they leave. Yeah, they're sticklers for paperwork. Yeah. They, yeah, they throw that line back in his face. Yeah. So, uh, well, he, he tries to catch some Zs, and in his new dream, he has another dream, but this time he gets into it with some, uh, there's like some weird zombie things and baby-faced monsters. And, and I think he fights a samurai. Yes, he fights a samurai. And as Brendan pointed out to me in a text message, <laughs> this is a way better samurai fight, probably the best samurai fight, but a way better samurai fight than a, a 2011's Sucker Punch. Yeah, that samurai fight is awful. <laughs> but that, but also I think I read that that samurai fight was particularly inspired by this scene in brazil well not in terms of quality no certainly not although didn't they circle the samurai with a helicopter or, or like a plane and like riddle a fucking machine gun no, on them? that was pretty cool that was when they're fighting like dragons or something what are you making me think a sucker punch it's a it, it's um it's like a 65 year old man's interpretation of what a video game is 50th episode spectacular of what were they thinking <laughs> we did sucker punch oh uh, you are brave and i thank you for your courage thank you America. So, yeah, he fights this samurai in his dream, and the samurai has a big spear, and Sam only has a little sword, but he does his best. Eventually, he sticks his damn sword in the samurai's foot, and it catches fire, and the samurai's stuck, and the samurai had already jammed his own spear in the ground, and then Sam ran over, and he grabs the samurai's huge spear and murders him with his own spear. Sam should have been a samurai, because then he'd be samurai. Sam the samurai, but... This is where this plays into this, Brendan, because okay. uh, I didn't actually think of the oh, same part. But then we go down, and he takes the mask off, and like Darth Vader before him and Luke Skywalker, it's his own face! It's his own face, which... He murdered himself! And I wonder if that's like the symbolism of him, like, killing off a certain portion of himself. Yeah. A certain part of himself, rather. Part of his ego must die before he can achieve the woman that he wishes to achieve. Well, like maybe he's killed. Maybe he's killed off the uh, the, the, the the strict government type yeah. version of himself. Absolutely. So, so he, yeah, but at his home, he's awoke by his doorbell. Yes. And it's a singing telegram, and a very atonal sing, singing telegram, atonal. Yeah, a very like funny scene because it, it's again that mixture of old and new. It's like in this futuristic society, why do we have still have singing telegrams? Yeah, like it's exactly. such a weird thing. And and it, and, it, and it has a very vaudevillian type joke where it's like she sings him the telegram and she's like, "And is there a response, sir?" And he's like. Could you tell my mother that I don't want to come at dinner to... D and then she's like, no, you don't have to sing it, sir. You, you could just write it write down. down. I'll sing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and, and, um, and he doesn't want to go, but then he realizes that she's actually quite late. She's like, wait, you realize this is an hour after the party started. Why are you so late? He goes, well, we're really backed up. So he decides to go to the party anyways, because he knows Helpman might be there. Mm-hmm. Also, I just want to mention the singing telegram girls because yes. very, there's a very funny moment where, like, when she's done and he's just kind of thinking of, like, what he's going to say, she kind of looks around the room in an, in an awkward little way yeah. and just, like, just, like, waiting for him yeah. to, like, say whatever. And it's, just, just, it's like she's seeing the room. She's kind of notices the room for the first time. She's like, huh. Yeah. It's, it's just <laughs> Which is funny. in shambles because of the, uh, the repairman. Uh, yeah, exactly. So he goes to that party. He sees, uh, he goes to see his mother, but on the way there, before he sees, he's, well, he's, well, he walks in and he gets assaulted by 
18th century uh, uh, guards with a 20th century pistol. Yep. Uh, he Old gets, and new. Yeah, he gets shook down, but then once Catherine Hellman waves them off, uh, uh, he's fine. But then he realizes his mother looks better than ever. She looks like Catherine Hellman. Like, before, her face was all white and pale and, like, clearly almost alien. But now she actually looks like they did a proper job, and she looks very good. Now it looks like she's not wearing much makeup, because no. that's how the actress looks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, she's looking very good. And, um... <laughs> Dr. Jaffe is there and he's quite drunk. And and I think Sam at one point is like, he did a pretty good job. And he's like, good job. He's like, we got so much more to do. And he's like, what do you mean you got more to do? He's like, well, you've seen her without clothes on. You know what we have to do. We gotta Whoa. fix her tits and ass. We gotta fix her tits and ass. <laughs> and this, this is also a bit where Jack Lind comes back into the picture, Michael Palin. And we learn that he has no backbone. Yes. Because uh, he's meeting up with uh, Mr. Heltman. Or Dr. Heltman? Mr. Heltman? Mr. Heltman. Mr. Heltman. And Mr. Heltman uh, mistakenly calls his wife Barbara. Barbara. She goes to correct him and he's like, oh, Barbara's great. Barbara's fantastic. Because <laughs> later he's like, he calls her Barbara and he goes, are you insistent still calling her Barbara? And he's like, oh, why not? It's a perfectly fine perfectly name. fine name. <laughs> like if my boss wants to call her Barbara, I guess that's her name now. Yeah, absolutely. So he finds Heltman. There's also a really funny bit where Sam thinks they're talking about breast implants. Yes. And they were talking about how her ears were pinned back. And he's like, oh, I thought you wore falsies. False, false ears. (laughs) (laughs) They did used to stick out a bit. Yeah. (laughs) So he finds Mr. Heltman. And he gets a minute to plead to him that he he does want the promotion. That he and if it's still possible, he goes, "Well, it's on me. I decide it." And well, not before Mister Hellman like, looks at him very sincerely, sincerely though, and says, says, "I need your help with something." I need your help. And with you're something. like, "Oh shit!" And then cut to him helping him take a piss in the bathroom. Yeah, Mister <laughs> Hellman is in a wheelchair, so yeah. he's basically got him in like a some sort of a not not a full Nelson because it's from underneath, but he's got him in some sort of a hold so that he it's, can stand there and use the urinal. It's a, such a British humor yeah. moment, though. <laughs> And, of course, he's very thankful. And this is our friend Peter Vaughn, of course, uh, Mr. Helpman. A.K.A. the uh, problematic soldier from Zulu Dawn. Yeah. He's One not, of the he, many. He's not, he's not racist here, but he's not much better. Yeah. Um, but, yes, he, he uh, appreciates the help, and he does uh, allow Sam to take the promotion. And so Sam gets a new office and a new neighbor and a new part of the uh, Ministry of Information. Uh, he meets his neighbor initially over fighting over the desk because he's in a tiny a tiny closet office that only has one window that he can't see out of because it's very high. And the desk is literally shared between the two offices. Yes, yeah, they have one desk that they have a share, and it can move back and forth. So he's like trying to put his shit, and it keeps falling over, and eventually the guy next door pulls it, and it's a very... And again, another like like physical comedy scene out of a silent movie. Yeah. Of them fighting over the desk, and then him going over and... <laughs> 100%. Actually, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that. I was going to save this for later, but Roger Ebert actually mentioned that that scene, uh, he said, where Sam moves into half an office and finds himself engaged in a tug of war over his desk with the man through the wall. He says, I was reminded of a Chaplin film, Modern Times, and reminded too that in Chaplin, economy and simplicity were virtues, not the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> Was that a shot, or was that? A... Uh, he didn't like it. He, he gave like it like Brazil? he gave it. Uh, it was a thumbs down. It was like two out of four. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So his neighbor turns out is a fellow named Harvey Lyme. Harvey Lyme, played by Charles McEwen. Yeah, and he's great. He's wonderful. Um, but he needs access to his computer because he doesn't have a computer terminal in his room. He's like, "Can I use your computer terminal?" And he's like, "Ah, I'd rather just use it myself. What do you need?" And he's like, "I need you to look up this girl for me." Yeah. And he's like, "Oh, girl, eh?" And it's funny because he knows exactly. He he like nails exactly what is going on. He's like just being all jovial and kind of teasing him, but he's literally saying the exact truth of what is happening. That Sam wants to find out about this girl because he wants to fuck her. Basically. Yeah. Well, I mean, fall in love with her and then fuck her. Yeah. 
Whichever I mean, one comes first. This this is very much a movie where Sam sees the lady as the prize. Yes. He, so he's like, all right, fine. He leaves him with the, the basic information that he has and lets him go f- uh, dig it up for him. And when he comes back and gets it, it's still not very much information at all. It's like her, her height and her weight and like just like basic physical information. But there's also indication that uh, more information is to be found in room 5001. So Sam's like, that's where I'm going. He finds his old friend Jack. Yes, he finds Jack. And Jack, it turns out, is the interrogator. I'm sure he's one of many. Well, he's... The... He, but he's the one that's in room 5001. Yes, he's he's one of the interrogators. And by interrogator, we should say this means person who tortures. Basically tortures and kills people. Tortures and kills people. So you're like, oh... This is Michael Palin's character. It yeah. is a 180 from what this, you expect. Yeah, exactly. And Michael Palin playing it up, you know, being so jovial and like, oh, hello, old friend. Well, would you like to hear a little bit? Let's hear a little bit of this scene. <laughs> His daughter is also in the room. His daughter is present, yes. His very young daughter. Jack. Sam. Ah. I heard you were coming aboard. Congratulations. DZ stroke 015. Thanks. Are you officer 412 stroke L? Uh-huh. That's me. Old Sam, a very happy Christmas. Thanks, Jack. You settling in all right? Yes, fine. Jack, I, I, I need some information. Oh, Sam, this is information retrieval, not information dispersal. <laughs> hey, Amy, don't throw the ball around in here. Oh, no, Amy, I'm Holly. Did I call you Amy, darling? I'm sorry. A triplet? One of them, I think. Barbara's taking the other two Christmas shopping. Oh, I... You're not going to keep calling her Barbara, are you? Why have I not? Barbara's a perfectly good name, isn't it? Don't, don't you like it? Yes, it's fine. Come on. Let's get these together. Jack, now bring me the blue one over there. I need to find out about a woman. Come on, Chloe, let's show Uncle Sam here how we can make the word cat. Shall we? I'm Holly. I'm sorry, love. So you are. This is her. <laughs> I, I wonder, too, because um, I saw in the credits that girl's name is actually Holly. So I wonder if, if he was calling her a name and she just said, I'm Holly, and they thought it was funny and then ran with that bit. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the actress's name is Holly. Yeah, yeah, the young actress's name is oh, actually wow. Holly. So I'm wondering if she just was responding, he called her the Amy or whatever. She's like, I'm Holly. That's funny. So it's, of course, it's this real big juxtaposition of him as this, like, basically, like, murderer, torturer, interrogator. He, he, his, the front of his jacket is covered in blood. Yeah, to... Oh, his daughter's just hanging out with him. <laughs> and, and he's jovial Jack, you know, his old buddy. Oh, hello. And, yeah, and, yeah. And I love the. I appreciate the irony of a man with no backbone that is a torturer. Yeah. <laughs> Sam tells him his story and and wants Jill's file, and he fills her in. Apparently, she's been agitating over Buttle's arrest, and so she's becoming a bit of a problem. Yeah, he's like, we we think she might be working for some organization or yeah. something, trying to like def- like ruin our name or yeah. something like that. Exactly. Yeah. And of course, she's a terrorist. Obviously, obviously a terrorist. Um, and Sam wants it, wants the file, and he doesn't. Jack doesn't want to give it to him, but he finally he says, okay, look, here, take it, but do not lose it. This is a favor I'm doing you. Yeah. So he's, uh, at one point he's going back upstairs in the elevator after he gets this file, and he notices Jill in the building at the desk trying to get more information. She's still in the process of trying to get more information, so this has been a multiple-day affair at this point. Um, and uh, <laughs> in a gr- another great, like, silent film scene, he, like, just trying to reverse the elevator and finally gets the elevator to reverse and go back down to the floor. And as it's going back down, it just goes, slides right past the floor to go down even further. <laughs> yep, we have a, a crazy kind of action sequence coming up here, too. Yeah. He, he gets he gets stopped by a guard. He's like, mm-hmm. I want to see your credentials, et cetera, et cetera. He's like, no, I don't have time for that. So he 
friggin' runs off. All these guards are chasing. They all corner Jill. And then he finally finds his badge, because that's yeah. what he was trying to find. And he comes in. He's like, oh, yes, yes, very good, very good. We, yeah, they, we, well, we, he, he runs up, and they see his badge on his belt. And they yeah. all, like, stand at attention. Yeah. And he's like, wait, what the fuck's going on? And then he looks down and realizes the badge is there. And then he proceeds to pick it up and hold it up and be like, badge, this is my badge. I'm taking her. Yeah, yeah he says, like, oh, very good, uh, very good gentleman. Good show. Good, good show. Job, you got good her. job. You've all, you've all done very well. You'll be in commendations in the file and all that sort of thing. Yeah. And he hustles her out of the building. And, uh, but she wants no part of him. Yeah, she doesn't know who he is or what he wants. Because he's like, you're in my dreams and we're in love. And well, she's like, Well, she, oh. he gets there, doesn't he? He doesn't say that immediately. But like, she goes and she goes and gets her truck and, and leaves. And he like jumps onto the truck. Yeah. And and manages to climb in the cab and is talking to her. And yeah, one of the first things he tells is like, you've been in my dreams and I'm in love with you. <laughs> yeah. So needless to say, she's a little put off. That uh, is that. You want to get someone's panties wet? Yeah. That is the way to do it. So she decides to run with it for a minute just to kind of distract him, and she eventually opens the door of the, the other side of the truck and just kicks his ass to the to the Yeah, full-on lucha kicks him right out of the yeah. truck. And this is the moment I was going to talk to you about earlier when I said Terry Gilliam very inspired by cartoons, mm-hmm. because this whole thing to me is like a Warner Brothers cartoon. Yeah. He's climbing around the truck trying to yeah. hang on as she's driving. He even puts a sign in the window that says, help me. Help me, or I love you. Uh, or or trust me. Trust, trust me. me, yeah, exactly. It says it, trust that's me. Just like a to- that's like a Wiley Coyote If moment. it had been on a stick, it would have been yeah, that much yeah, closer. Yeah. But yeah, no, you climb around the truck, and finally he manages to, to climb his ass back into the cab. Well, no, she she thinks she hits him. Oh, right. She yes. stops, and again, he's holding on to the front like a fucking cartoon character, mm-hmm. like to the bumper. Or, or like Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd or one of those Yeah, yeah, stars. silent yeah. film, for sure. And then, he, yeah, she he gets in, he finally gets in the cab with her, and then she drives to, like, where, like, her, uh, well, she like goes a to factory? A, well, what looks like an iron foundry, but is actually a place where they make prefab homes. That's where Tony Stark lives. Yeah, absolutely. The yes. Iron Man himself in iron, the foundry. Iron foundry. Iron. Foundry. That's like the playset you can buy. <laughs> <laughs> hey kids, you want to make your own iron? But for some reason, at this iron foundry, they're making prefab homes, and they put one on a trailer, and she hooks a truck up to take it to where I assume she—that's where job. She delivers these prefab homes. Yeah. Um, but she also picks up a box of presents. Yes, a box of presents. Uh, that's Who, what she tells Sam. What, that's what she tells Sam, but we don't know. We don't know what's in there. We don't know what Jill's capable of. Something blew up. It might have been her. Yeah. Terrorist. Yep. So. uh they so they're driving along and down the the highway and chatting and and of course this is the highway with all the billboards and it's just wasteland beyond it that's been completely stripped of resources. Yeah, it looks nasty. Um, and they approach a government checkpoint or some sort of like a, a roadblock. A roadblock, yeah. With and Jill, of course, is going to slow down and deal with it because she's a truck driver and that's what you do. But Sam is like, "No, we got to go!" And he fucking puts his foot on the gas and just hits well, it because he knows they're after. Her. He knows they're after. Her. Yeah. And they fucking blast through the uh, through the thing, and of course that sets off all the guards and everything. They they run off and they find refuge in a store. It's like a mall, right? Yeah, it's like a mall. Yeah, selling Christmas presents. Yeah, which like he runs into uh, that that woman that's slowly deteriorating from yes. plastic surgery. Complications from my complications, you yeah. see. And then, kablam! Another bomb goes off. It goes off and, and, and severely injures a number of people. And now it's funny too, if you'll notice throughout the movie, and I I don't know if you noticed this, I, this is the first time I've noticed it and I've watched this movie a number of times. There's a lot of characters in this movie you see in the background that do not have, they only have one leg. Oh, really? Yeah, absolutely. I didn't notice uh, that. Like, like, there's one point there at the bus stop, and there's a woman that has a cane. She's only got one leg. Huh. I, there's multiple people, and I think that's the implication is that these are victims of these terrorist attacks. Which happen all the time. Which seem to happen all the time, yeah. Yeah. Um, so when the story of a bomb goes off, and J- and Sam, looking for Jill, finds her, and then proceeds to accuse her of being the one to plant the bomb, assuming that the package that she had was a bomb. 
She like rolls over and grabs the package she had and opens it up and it's like it's fucking Christmas presents and it's all those same corporate. Well, she says it's bribes or bribes, yes, yeah, bribes. for executives mm-hmm. trying to get because she's still trying to uh, figure out what happened with Mister Buttle's arrest. Yeah, which I think is funny because like the bribes and it's all the same fucking thing as the presents. Yeah, yeah, exactly. For some reason that is desirable. Yeah. Yeah, while they're in there, then the police show up, the troops and everything, and this Sam... This samurai fight. Yeah, Sam starts to hallucinate and sees the fucking samurai from his dreams, and he picks up what appears... What is it, a mannequin arm? Yeah. That's on the ground, as if it's a sword, and then he's quickly rifle-butted by a troop, and Jill is arrested, and he's arrested. Yep, so... But he's arrested, but he's... I don't, I don't, think, I don't know if he's arrested, Well, he's not arrested, but he he's is... Taken he's taken back to He's rifle-butted, and he wakes up in the paddy wagon, and the paddy wagon has, like eight people hanging from the hooks in the crazy uh, straight jackets with yeah. the face covers. And we got the guards in the truck and they're having a very workmanlike conversation in that wonderful, like cockney lower class. Oh, did you, uh, did you just pull that clip? Is that, did you just hear that <laughs> yeah, that was exactly it. But you know, they're like, like in very many British movies and Monty Python sketches, just these two like lower class guys having a chat about their job. Very matter of factly. And Sam wakes up, and he immediately starts like, Jill, 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 and opening up the faces of all the people in the vehicle, and they're not very happy. They're like, sir, you can't. Just sit down. It's cool. We'll take you back to the office. And Sam keeps doing it, so they have to rifle-butt him again and knock him out. So no one wants to help him on his quest anymore after that incident. He's knocked out again for, for, in the truck, and then he wakes up, and he goes to a number of people to see about getting some help in this situation. Harvey Lime doesn't want to help him, and Jack doesn't want to help him. In fact, Jack says, hey, maybe until this all blows over, don't talk to me anymore. Yeah. We're not friends. We're totally. not really friends until this is all blown over and you're cool. So he's getting desperate. He returns to his apartment, which is now frozen. <laughs> it was hot before, now it's frozen. Yeah. And the engineers are still in there. Uh, and uh, they've ejected him, I think, at this point from his apartment. They've, they've had the paperwork to kick him out. Yeah, to kick him out because they, they could say it's no, it's not habitable. No, and so. it's clearly not. Because it's full of ice, yep. and they're in there in uh, in some very weird uh, uh, like spacesuit type things, like a diving suit even. Yeah, and I hope you can explain the scene to me because I was a little confused. So they they've got airlines hooked up, and Harry Tuttle, our friend uh, Robert De Niro, shows up yet again to save the day, um, or at least to get Sam a little bit of revenge. Yeah, he may, he makes it so that shit starts filling their suits. Yeah, so he goes into the wall and. <laughs> And of course, the the air the, the the pipe that's hooked up to the air is right next to the pipe that is hooked up to the sewage. So he takes the air pipe and hooks it up to the sewage pipe, yep. and proceeds to fill these clear spacesuit underwater suit things with shit. And it so, falls up, it flows up to the top, and then they drown in the shit, and then it explodes. So does he kill them? That was, I think, that's the implication. But that's my thing. Is like. If, if they didn't die in the explosion or drowning from the shit, then they probably froze to death afterwards. I did, but my thing is like, did they though? Because the way Sam reacts, it doesn't mean... Oh, no, they have a laugh. They, they have a laugh, definitely. Yeah, that, 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 stri- he doesn't strike me as someone who would have a laugh from someone dying. Yeah. Because there's also that scene uh, that we just passed where he sees one of the workers on fire and literally has a moment of like, whoa, that's someone dying. Like, I don't... I just doesn't... The character doesn't strike me as someone no, who No, well, maybe it doesn't enter into his head. Maybe it doesn't even enter into his head. He doesn't think they're dead, necessarily. And maybe they aren't. Maybe they aren't. We don't see them again. We don't see them again. That's why I assume they're dead. Terry... Hit us up on the Twitter. Let us know. And then uh, Harry takes off, but Jill also shows up. He tells her they got to get out of there. they got to run. Yep. But Harry takes off into the night like Batman again. But they go to his mother's place. They go to his mother's house. And he's where, like, I have a great idea. Let's make out. Let's make out. 
Also, I have a great idea. I'll be right back. Yeah, he, he's like, you know what? I have a better idea than making out right now. Although I totally want to make out right now. I have a better idea, which is I'm going to go check something out. You stay here. Yeah. So he goes to the ministry and basically breaks into the computer system and declares her dead. He, uh, yeah, he re- for some reason remembered uh, something helping and said where here I am, J-H, that is, ended up being his code for the elevator. Which uh, we should note also that at the same time, uh, much like Batman and Robin, one of the officers is leading the security in a... In a, in a choir, yes, there's yeah. a guard choir. I, I re- was really hoping it was going to be, I'm Mr. White Christmas, <laughs> I'm Mr. Snow. <laughs> Come on, sing, sing! But it was not that. No. Mr. White Christmas, I'm Mr. Snow. I'm Mr. Icicle, I'm Mr. Tenderloin. Thing, thing! Call me Snow Miser. Whatever I touch turns the snow in my clutch. Come on, sing! Louder, come on, sing, sing, sing! Come on! Please, Mr. White yes, come on, louder! Minus five stars. Breaks into the office. Hacks in Helpman's computer, which I don't know what hacking is. Maybe he had to turn some knobs or something. But he hacks in and he uh, declares Jill deceased. Deceased. Dead. Kaputsky. And then goes home to his mother's house yes. and proceeds to fuck her in his mother's bed. But before they fuck, there's this exchange that I want to play. All right. You don't exist anymore. I've killed you. Jill Layton is dead. Care for a little necrophilia? Hmm? That's what you can expect from a Terry Gilliam movie, Brendan. Said in a romantic way. Absolutely. And yeah, like I say, then they go to town in his own mother's bed. That's not a plot point, but that's kind of weird. It is kind of weird. They have six... And Sam finally achieves the prize he'd been seeking this whole time. An orgasm. Yes. From this lady specifically. Yes. One must also note that during this time, when, when he comes into the room initially, she has long hair. Yeah, she, which <laughs> is a wig we find out after, yeah. which I was, this is where I started to be like, okay, what's even real at this yeah. point? But. Then she pulls the wig off and it's like, oh, okay. But the, uh, the ministry dives in. And uh, arrests both Comes them. in the roof like they did before. Arrests, well, at first, mostly arresting Sam. But then we hear Jill screaming. And then as we cut to black, we hear gunshots. Yes. And we find out, as Sam is coming to, that Jill has been killed while resisting arrest. We mm. never see that, mind no. you. We're told that. We're told that. But uh, Sam is... Uh, is is in a in a in a padded room mm-hmm. and he's being told this by Mr. Heltman who is dressed like Santa Claus because, because again it's Christmas. It is Christmas. It's still Christmas. It's still Christmas. Which yeah, you, you make a good point. I don't think this movie takes place over a large period of time. Mm. But yeah, it feels like the the Christmas thing it might it might happen like almost every day. Yeah. Or or maybe every week or every month or something. Like it's always the Christmas season. Yeah. Because it's the consumerism of the society demands it. The society that has chewed up all the resources and making all these fucking desk toys. Yes. Um, so Hellman basically comes in and is like, look, look, Sam, sorry you're here, but, uh, you know, you got to trust the system's going to work. That's all you got. You just got to trust the system's going to work. It's all going to be fine. Yep. <laughs> and then they take him in and they read his charges and let's listen to those charges. Absolutely. One of my I, favorite scenes in the movie. Uh, now you have to understand this whole scene takes place from Sam's view through the slot in his 
uh, straight jacket outfit while hanging from a like metal uh, like support. And listen real closely to the last charge. Nine three stroke HKS stroke six zero eight. You were charged with the following: giving aid and comfort to the enemies of society, attempting to conceal a fugitive from justice, passing confidential documents to unauthorized personnel vis IR dossier Julian Layton, destroying government property vis an indeterminate number of personnel carriers, taking possession under false pretenses of said personnel carriers, forging the signature of the head of records, third department, attempting to misdirect ministry funds the form of a check to A Buttle through unauthorized channels. Tempering central services supply ducts, obstructing the forces of law and order in the exercise of their duty, bringing into disrepute the good name of the government and standing within the community of the Department of Information Retrieval. Attempting to disrupt the Ministry of Information Retrieval's internal communicating systems. Wasting ministry time and paper. <laughs> Wasting ministry time and paper. That's the number one offense, I think. And then and then from there, he proceeds to uh, be placed in front of a number of... Uh, of uh different financial advisors as they figure out how he's going to pay for his incarceration and interrogation. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah a bunch it? of different loan officers, essentially. It's, it's great. It's very funny. Uh, so he's in the chair. They've hooked him up to this interrogation chair. And lo and behold, here comes Jack. Well, with well, a, a man with a baby mask on. And which, then which, I mean, quick, it's clearly Jack. Quickly learned is Jack. Yeah. And he's pretty ma- pretty angry that he has to do this, and he's like, "Why are you making me do this? Oh, for God's sake!" Yeah, he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to interrogate this guy that is his friend, and that's understandable. And he reaches in with a little picking tool, and then boom, he gets shot in the head, and he takes the mask off despite being shot in the head, and then dies. And yep. we see that all of a sudden, Harry Tuttle and his band of renegade heating engineers stream in from the ceiling on repelling wires, spotlights, and everything, spotlights and everything, and come in and save the day and rescue Sam. And he, or they run him out through into the lobby, and there's a running gun battle, and Sam is given a gun, and he starts shooting guys left and right. And the 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 guards at one point are all lined up like they're a fucking seventh or eighteenth century line of British soldiers firing their shotguns in succession. And Sam is firing at them, and he has to be pulled away out of the room to go. And they, they make it to that store from earlier. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's this giant, like, wind of newspapers. And Harry Tuttle's covered, getting covered in them. And then he's just gone. Yeah, Sam tries to pull them off him. But when he pulls the newspapers away, there's just nobody there. And he's disappeared. He's been eaten by these newspapers. So Sam is running. He ends up running into, the into a, like, a funeral home. Well, church. or A church. I think, where there is being a, fu- where there a and funeral, there's a funeral being, held being held. For that uh, over-surgeried woman from yes. earlier. Who uh, who had uh, had complications this time? Final complications. Yeah, and uh, his mother's there, except her face is Jill's face. And then when it cuts back, it's her again. Yeah, very briefly, for yeah. like half a second. Yeah, uh, and and then the troops all rush in, and Sam is cornered, and he like leans up against the casket, and then the casket gets launched up, and it opens up, and falls this woman. In. Oh well, no. First, the casket opens up, and this woman just—it opens up, and you see just this mass of a body, and it just disintegrates into a pile of meat. It's like glass and oh, organs. Oh, yeah. just so and then, then he, he falls in. He falls into the casket, and then a all long, of a sudden, long way. a long, long way, and he ends up on a street, and he runs down that street, and all of a sudden, he's at a, at, at an intersection, and there's like a blocked way, and then the other three ways, there's like monsters coming at him, and troops, uh, stuff from his dreams, they're all coming at him. So he runs up the fucking. A uh, pile of garbage, and there's a wall there. All of a sudden, there's a handle on the wall, and he opens up the door, and he goes through the door, and he's in a house. And it's the house on the back of the truck that, that Jill's get, driving. That Jill is driving. He sees her through the window. And Jill becomes the man in this situation, the stereotypical male role, because she let he leans on her shoulder, yep. and she puts her arm around him. And God damn it, Jason, they're going to this beautiful place, yeah, this absolutely. beautiful home. They're out they've, in the country. They've made it out to the country. It's... 
a happy ending. It pulls Thank back. Thank you, Sid Sheinberg. This is exactly Absolutely the way it ends. what we wanted. This is just the way the movie should end. The camera pulls back, and just before we see the end pop up, it doesn't. It cuts back to the interrogation room where Sam still is. They have Jack and Mr. Helpman literally and walk Helpman, into the background. Yeah, or they walk into the into the frame, and then all of a sudden, Sam's face, and then they're standing there, and Helpman says to Jack, I think you went too far, man. I think he's a bit too far gone. I think he's gone. And yeah. Jack was like, yeah, well, he's a lost cause. They walk away, and Sam is basically lobotomized. Yeah, he's he's humming the, the tune Brazil. And that's how the fucking movie ends. And that was the longest time it took us to get through a summary. Yeah, but that was Jason. Hour, yeah, we, we spent an hour talking about this summary. But it's a great movie. It is a great movie, and... Oh, spoiler alert for me now. So, let's get into a bit of the background here. I got, I got some stuff to say here, Jason. Yes. So... First of all, I want to say that this movie was under the working titles, The Ministry. Mm-hmm. That was one of the work, and also 1984 and a half, which, which is a great title. Interesting. Now, here's the thing: 1984 and a half, obviously a nod to George Orwell's uh, 1984, but also Fellini's Eight and a Half. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I guess Terry Gilliam might be saying some things about himself yeah. in this movie. <laughs> uh, what's interesting about this? this uh, reference to these movies is that Terry Gilliam himself admitted that he's never actually read 1984. Yeah. He's just like, this is what I think 1984 probably is, which is something I kind of an anomaly <laughs> for me. Like, well, I've never but it, heard it's, of... it's one of those like pop culture ideas that's out there in the zeitgeist that people know about and have a, at least a, a basic idea of what it is. They just, they can't help, but it's one of those things in English literature in this, you know, in the last hundred years that everybody knows about to some extent. Yeah. And and do you, and you know the bit about it, he wanted to call it 1984 and a half, but he decided against it because he said that bastard that directed the uh, John Hurt 1984 put out a movie called 1984, so I can't call it 1984 and a half now. And but it's just it's so yeah it's known in the culture, but it's just still so weird to me that a filmmaker yeah. is like I'm basing this on a book I've never read. Well, maybe it's also too he liked the idea that came from the idea of Big Brother and a totalitarian society, but he also didn't want to just read 1984 and then do Orwell. He wanted to do his own spin. Maybe he read it afterwards someday. I don't know. I don't know. I think I don't think he's ever read it. Well, he should. It's a good book. Um, another big thing is actually something Jason and I talked about off-air before we started recording is about the song Brazil. Mm-hmm. Now, I said there's no way Terry Gilliam just randomly put the song Brazil. I think we can agree on that. There's yeah. no way he just randomly selected the song. No, no, no. There's, there's reasoning for there's it. There's reasoning for it. And I read a couple theories online, mm-hmm. and I want to see what you think. All right. So one theory is the following. This movie is called Brazil, mostly because the song fits the movie. It has its ups, downs, sideways moments, and anything of the sort. The song is romantic, frightening, joyful, dreamy, and once again, other feelings that are up for interpretation. Sam's emotions are on a roller coaster. One minute he's after the woman in his dreams, Jill, and the next thing he's making sure his mother doesn't interfere with his job or his life. The song just sums up the craziness that is Sam, his life, and his moments throughout the film. It is for that reason the movie is named Brazil. What do you think about that? Yeah. No, uh, my my theory, and maybe it's in there. I'll, I'll just insert mine here. Mine is is along the lines of the the song represents like, and I've seen this word written elsewhere in reference to it, but the, the utopian idea of of what Sam's thinking about, like Sam's dreams are like his fantasy, right? It's his utopian fantasy of him being this guy that's able to fly through the sky and there's the girl that he wants and he's able to get her. And and the song, the the very upbeat sounding song, Brazil represents that and it's his ideal. And it and it's and it contrasts with what he's actually working with, which is this completely depressing uh, society that is completely authoritarian and, and, and not fun in the least. No. And it represents his 
kind of clash with that. And it also, I, I, I believe this song, and, and Brits out there that listen, let me know, but I think this is this song has a particular place in British pop culture, um, and I think it maybe means more to Brits that way than it does to us. But yes. uh, yeah, it, but it, it, it's a well-known song in Britain, and Terry Gilliam, who's lived in Britain for a long time, or did live in Britain for a long time, knows that. Well, and I've got one other thing to read here for you. So this is another theory on this. Um, it, it says, if I ask the average person to describe the real Brazil, the country, they might say a tropical, tropical country, high peaks, the great Amazon, the southern hemisphere, sounds like a great place. The reality is that Brazil is in the southern hemisphere, so the seasons, the natural way of life, is backwards. Brazil also has the highest murder rate of any country in the world. Probably as, mostly by cops. As it relates to the movie, Brazil is all these things. The hypocrisy of reality as seen through a dream. It's kind of a good... That's kind of an interesting way to look at it, honestly. Yeah. I like that. Well, also, and, and I don't know that this has anything to do with it, or maybe this is some deep reference to Brazil's culture or, or the violence of the system, but because Brazil used to be ruled by a military junta for a long time. Uh, and there's still a streak of that in this The Camer Rouge. Yes, sure, why not? <laughs> but um, I, I saw a video once years ago that purported to be from Brazil. And, and if it's not, if anybody's seen this video and they know, let me know. But in the video, uh, a, a fella is driving down the highway and he's got a camera in his car. And as he's driving along, he sees a helicopter like sitting in the air. And there's a guy who jumped out of a car and is running across the side of the highway where there's... Uh, uh, like a grass, like an open grass field, and the helicopter swoops around as this guy is running, and the dude in the helicopter opens up on him with a machine gun and just fucking drops him there in the field, and the dude in the car starts laughing his ass off at this happening. <laughs> so I wonder if that maybe is is it, it, that's I think that may be stretching it a bit, but maybe there's a deep reference to the the seedy underbelly. Brazil. Well, now, I'm not saying, and I'm not saying he referenced that video because I'm sure that video took place long after uh, Terry Gilliam made this movie, but. Well, now we have to talk about the struggle to get this movie made. The yes. battle for Brazil. There was a whole book and a movie about that battle. And I did watch the documentary, and I know Jason's seen it before. I have, yes. This is a battle between Terry Gilliam and a Universal Studio executive named Sid Sheinberg. Now, Terry Gilliam had his 142-minute version of Brazil. He actually released it in... Uh, Europe via Fox. Yes. Fox released the uncut version in Europe because you know, they know, you know, with art house crowds, they will love it. Yeah. And it did very well over there. Now, you have to keep in mind, this was going to be like a big studio movie. Yeah. Now, just imagine if you people out there are listening and you've seen Brazil, this was meant to be a studio film, a film for the masses. Yeah. Imagine the crowds that showed up for Back to the Future showed up for this movie instead. Yeah. <laughs> So that's the, so that is Sid Sheinberg's th line of thinking. He's like, I don't think this is a mass appeal movie. Which you know what, that part fine, absolutely true. Granted, <laughs> however, Sid Sheinberg also said, I feel like I should change the movie, which is where you get start getting into murky waters. Like, let me cut it. I'll I'll fix it. I want to start out by playing a qu uh, clip here from the documentary. This is Terry Gilliam's uh, letter that he wrote to Sid Sheinberg uh, during the time where Sid is trying to cut his movie up. And this is just Terry Gilliam reading the letter that he sent him. So. Attention, Sidney Sheinberg. Dear Sid, once upon a time you told me that you were not the one that put me in the chair at the end of Brazil. I'm afraid that is no longer true, unable as I am to think of anyone else who is directly responsible for my current condition. Your later offer to be the friend who becomes a torturer was, has more than come true. I'm not sure you are aware of just how much pain you are inflicting, but I don't believe responsibility to the company in any way absolves you from crimes against even this small branch of humanity. 
As long as my name is on the film, what is done to it is done to me. There's no way of separating these two entities. I feel every cut, especially the ones that sever the balls. And I plead, whether they are done in the name of legitimate and responsible experiments or personal curiosity, if you really wish to make your version of Brazil, then put your name on it. Then you can do what you like. Sid Scheinberg's Brazil has a nice ring to it, but until that time, I shall continue both to decline and also to decline. Please let me know how much longer must I endure before the bleeding stops. Deterioratingly yours, Terry, CC, Jack Lind. So this is Terry Gilliam writing this letter to Sid Scheinberg, placing him as the villain, as Jack Lint in yep. Brazil, torturing him. <laughs> uh, which is funny because you started out as my friend Jack Lint, yep. and now you end up my torturer Jack yep. Lint. So this is what he writes to Sid Scheinberg. So the way this movie comes together, Jason, mm-hmm. is that from a night of drunken conversation, uh, Terry Gilliam and this man named Arnon Mul- Milchin, uh, this uh, in Paris. They yeah. were, he's a producer. He produced a, a lot of huge movies. I th- I forget the names of them now. It's not striking me, but I, I, I assure you they're huge. They were big. Uh, there was no script. Gilliam just had all these ideas in his head, and he basically just threw them all at him. And that night, they made a deal. Mm. They made a deal to make this movie. Just, just that's that's it. Arnon Milchin uh, in the documentary says, I was just a huge fan of his, and I'd seen Time Bandits and Byron Munchausen, and I said, I'm, I'm in. I want to make this. Munchausen. Uh, or, sorry, Time Bandits and like Monty Python. Yeah. yeah. So, they're setting this up. Uh, however, no one wants to take it on. No one is interested in this in this idea. They think this is this is insane. This doesn't have mass market appeal? It doesn't have mass market appeal. Fox said, we'll make you a deal. We'll let you direct this, but we're trying to find a director for a project we've got right now. And, and we, you know, we're struggling to find a director. It's going to be a top, it's going to be one of our top movies. It's called Enemy Mine <laughs> with Louis Gossett Jr. We don't have a director. If you direct this movie for us, we'll help finance your other picture. And Terry Gilliam has said, no. <laughs> like, I have no interest in doing that whatsoever. Because he, he, the way he explains it, he says, in Hollywood, um, if you have a top project... And you get a director that's maybe not thought of as a top director. You're all already elevating that director. Whereas if you have a top director, and and then once you become a top director, he says you could do a project that's not thought of as a top project, but it automatically becomes a top project because it's associated with a top director. And 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 he is neither a top director nor that was going to be a top movie, and nobody would have benefited. Enemy Mine was supposed to be a top movie. I don't think that happened. <laughs> Um, it might have been if Terry Gilliam had taken a crack at it. That's true. <laughs> so he basically, but what he did though was he told the studio, he's like, "Listen, I'm already doing a top project. It's called Brazil, and I think it's going to be even bigger than Enemy Mine." And they said, "Whoa, even well, that sounds amazing." They started to get on board a little bit. Remind so, us to. F- I want to look that up later to okay. see if that's true. What if it did better than Enemy Mine? Oh, I, I don't, I don't know. Because I don't know that Enemy Mine was super successful either. I do, I've never seen it, but I, I, I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, probably. <laughs> so Terry Gilliam goes to Cannes, goes to the Cannes Film Festival. Him and Arnon, basically, it's, he basically describes in the documentary, we somehow started a bidding war for Brazil between two <laughs> studios who wanted nothing to do with it <laughs> at first. So between Fox and Universal, they were bidding on it. Fox obtained worldwide rights, so international rights, mm-hmm. while Universal had the rights to American distribution. So the film was, they gave him a $15 million budget, which Mm -hmm. is pretty big for 1985, uh, you know, a movie like this. Once the rough cut was completed, a bunch of Universal executives saw it, and many of them said they liked the film a lot as a quote-unquote 
art house release. Mm-hmm. But they didn't think it had a lot of commercial appeal. Uh, Sid Scheinberg even said, this is going to be the hardest movie of the decade to promote. <laughs> and I want to play a little clip here because this is the this is Terry Gilliam talking about they had the test screening for for just the executives. And just him describing how that went. And at the end of the film, I came in for the last 10 minutes. And I went up to the projection booth and I was looking down. And I saw as the lights came up the back of those necks, and I knew we were in big trouble. <laughs> I mean, every muscle was knotted, every tendon, ligament was just, ah, there was hatred written all over the back of those heads. And I just, I mean, I, I knew we're in big, big trouble. And we came down, the sun's shining, and everybody comes out. And, you know, everybody's noncommittal, but you know what's going on. And Sid had this line which uh, apparently Arne and I took in two totally different senses. And I, which was that, you know, we'll have to sell this as the film of the decade, which I knew meant that we're in trouble here. He doesn't have a clue. You can only sell it as something extraordinary, but you got to sell it hard because nobody's going to go to see this thing unless you con them. And Arne, on the other hand, thought it was a positive statement that it was indeed the film of the decade. And... Uh, so that's how the screening went with uh, with the uh, executives. Yeah. Not well. Not well. So update. Uh, here, here's the numbers. So Brazil cost $15 million to make and made $9.9 million at the box office. In the States. In the States. Yeah. So we'll say it lost, in the States, it lost $6 million. Five, yeah, five. Five, six million dollars. Yeah. Enemy Mine is estimated to have cost $40 million to make and its total USA box office take was $4,271,000. So a loss of $35 million. So not only did this movie do do actually better than Enemy Mine, it lost less money. It cost less, yeah. It cost less. Well, as I'm saying, it lost less money overall. So good call, Terry Gilliam. <laughs> so the executive screening, total disaster. And so he basically explained to Universal, like, listen, we've had this movie screen in Europe already. It's been out in yeah. Europe, and it's doing it's doing well. Um, so let's do let's do a test screening with actual audience with like uh, people from like psychology and philosoph- philosophy classes from UCLA, yeah. and let's see what they think about this thing. So he didn't go to it, but Universal claimed it was a disaster. Mm-hmm. They claimed that there were walkouts. They claimed that there are people that were just what? Like <laughs> there are people that liked it, but a lot of people didn't understand. It. A lot of people walked out. And Gilliam said, well, I think that's bullshit because back in Europe, I have people of all different sensibilities either like it or don't like it. And many of them love it. Mm. So I, I, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with you. I think you're lying to me. Sid Scheinberg wanted a, very, a shorter cut of the movie. He yeah. didn't ask for 89 minutes right off the bat, but he wanted something that wasn't two hours and 22 minutes. And there's this whole section of the documentary where executives are like, well, you know, it's hard to schedule a certain amount of screenings a night if it's if it's two and a half hours. Like, mm-hmm. we like to have it at two so we can have multiple screenings. And Terry Gilliam is like, fuck off. Like, you made <laughs> so many two and a half hour movies, you're giving me yeah, this yeah. shit. Like, that's a bullshit Come reason. On. 1985, like, surely we could find examples from that year of longer movies than Brazil. Exactly. And from what I, and this is something I didn't know, but Terry Gilliam has final cut on all of his films. People are not really allowed to edit his movies Mm. past what he, or, you know, over what he says. So they're basically begging him to do this. But he ultimately has the say. Yeah, and, and uh, but they could just be like, okay, we're not going to release it. That's the thing. That's an interesting thing too, because I imagine that comes from the fact that you know Terry Gilliam is a guy that works in Europe. He works outside the Hollywood system. He's not directing big budget 
Hollywood movies generally. And he also is not directing every year. Yeah. His so, movies are sparse. So clearly when he does a movie, it's because he wants to do it, and it's because he can do it the way he wants to do it. Yeah. So according to Sid Sheinberg, he says, I believe the theme of this film is that love conquers all. <laughs> and Terry Gilliam said, well, that's news to me. <laughs> So Sid Sheinberg went ahead with his edit. Yeah. Even though, you know, Terry had to say if he was going to release it or not. And Terry Gilliam is like, I felt I felt assaulted because Sid's editors would go over to Terry, Terry and say, oh, do you want to have any input on this? And he says, no. And he says, like, no, I, I can't have any input on this because you're killing my movie. Like, what do you want me to do? Put it all back together. That's my input. Yeah. Like, <laughs> um. So Terry Gilliam takes matters in his own hands. There's this is a lot of backstory. Does he they, murder Sid Sheinberg? No. Oh, okay. There's a lot of backstory, but I feel like a lot of it's all interesting. It's all interesting, yeah, absolutely. So Terry Gilliam takes matters in his own hands. He releases a full page ad in Variety. <laughs> it simply says, "Sid Sheinberg, when are you going to release my film Brazil?" Terry Gilliam. That's it, a Trump move. Yeah, that's a that's a Betty Davis move. Yeah, Betty Davis putting a wanted ad famously back in the uh, back around the time of. Uh, uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Was it full page? No, but she put a little classified oh, okay. ad. <laughs> as a working actress looking for a job. <laughs> um, so he does this, and the studio is like, fuck, like you're starting a battle now. So now people know that this is this little underdog fighting to get his movie released. He takes Robert De Niro on Good Morning America mm. with him because he knows he can get a spot on Good Morning America with if he fucking has Robert, Robert De, Niro. De Niro. yeah. So Terry is saying, like, you know, Bobby says, like, I don't know, three fucking words. And then, because that's Robert De Niro, he doesn't do interviews. And he's like, and then I just talk for the rest of the interview about Brazil and how the studio won't release it. Uh, and, and it's basically getting people on his side. What I think is really interesting, too, is that Sid Sheinberg says, you know, Terry is positioning himself as this, as this, as like a Sam character, as like a hero in his in his story. But really, he's more like one of the terrorist characters. And I'm like, you haven't seen yeah, the movie, or you you fully misunderstand the point of this movie. <laughs> well, he thinks that the theme is love conquers all. Yeah, well, clearly, yeah. Then he doesn't understand what this thing's about. Like you see, you, that means that you're you're ironically you're saying that he is like the terrorist character, and that he's actually not the villain. Yeah, and that you are. Yeah, that is what you were saying. Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. <laughs> Fuck. The only yeah, the only character that I, is identified as a terrorist, Harry Tuttle, mm-hmm. and he ends up being one of the best friends for Sam. So Gilliam is like, I have another plan, not a murder. No, we're, oh. we're not at that part yet. Okay. He brings the movie to USC, all 142 minutes of it, but he's also doing like a he's also there to do like a uh, like a like a guest speaker thing about film. He's oh. talking to a bunch of students, but. So he's basically going back and forth. Well, actually, I'll play the clip. You can listen to what happened at this USC screening. I have not heard this clip, or, or not for a long time at least. I'm down with Arthur Knight on the stage with the students talking about filmmaking and films, Brazil in particular, and every few minutes I'd be called out to take a phone call. I said, this is, to the students, this is what really filmmaking is about. It's not about camera angles, but not about lenses, and not about film stock. It's about this. We spend most of our energy running up and down dealing with people in studios and legal people. And, and the battle went back and forth, back and forth. And eventually, my lawyer got the universal lawyer to concede that we could show clips of the film. And so, boom, go to the man who's in charge. Wouldn't have anything to do it. Even then, and I'm, by this time, I'm saying, it's Germany. We're in Germany. There's six million Jews dying down there, and you're doing nothing? <laughs> They're burning people down there, and you're doing nothing? 
That's a that's a that's a bit strong comparison, Terry. <laughs> a little hyperbole, but you get yeah. the idea. It's like nobody the, the, the projectionist is like, I don't care if you've co- like confirmation to show clips. I'm not showing it. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So then he decides to take the movie down to Cal Arts, and they say yes, you can play a clip. So you know what this motherfucker does? He plays a quote unquote clip. It is about 142 minutes, minutes and 30 seconds of the movie. <laughs> And then he says, you know, I've got to get more people on my side. So he goes to the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. And he says, we're all going to meet at this rundown gun club. <laughs> this is this place where no one will expect that we're going to be. And he screens it for them. Yeah. And, it, like, the people that were on the association at the time were like, it was crazy. It was the craziest thing we've ever done is watching <laughs> this movie. And then we think, hey, can this technically win awards since it's not been released yet? Hmm. And so they have that discussion. They're like, well, yes, technically it is eligible for awards distinction so after they decide that the awards come out and terry gilliam gets a voicemail terry it's steve when you hear this wow first wow hold your hand i mean hold your pants and la critics circle award best picture brazil best director terry gilliam best screenplay brazil are you fucking can you imagine that i mean I just got called from Jack Matthews. It's, I, I know it's about, I don't know, whether it's 5 o'clock here, so it's got to be uh, 8 hours difference in the 3 o'clock in the morning or whatever, but Terry, best picture, best director, and best screenplay. God damn, I, I, I'm, I'm going to call on on now, but uh, I called you. I can't fucking believe it. Please get to the phone somehow and just at least hear that. Wow, wow, congratulations. I'll call Milchon now. I'll talk to you later, I hope. Bye. <laughs> yeah, so just fucking three top awards. That's crazy. It wins. And he's and Terry Gilliam is saying, you know what, this just kind of, you know, justified what I was trying to do. And, of course, Universal is saying, like, well, did they give it to him or do they want to join the, the wagon of the underdog and kind of just say, yeah, it's the best movie and we're giving him all these awards. And in the documentary, there's like one guy who was on the association and he's like, no, we were blown away by this movie. It was the best film of the year. And then you have an executive that says, I don't know if it was the best film of the year. I think it was a political power play and stuff like that. It was a really good movie, but it certainly was helped by the, I'm sure by the, the craziness of like, Hey, we're going to go run down to a secret gun club to watch this thing. Like, yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, Brazil is barely a hit. Yeah. It's, it, it makes, like you said, nine point nine million in the states. It's a fifteen million dollar budget. It does make a lot of money in over like internationally. Well, like a decent amount of money. It makes its money back barely. Yeah. So it's not really typical Terry Gilliam. Yeah, Gilliam actually even admit in the documentary. He says, "I even look back now and I see a few problems with the movie, but he's like, I wouldn't change anything now because I was a different person then, and I'm not going to pretend that I." You know, people are evolving and mm. whatever. That's a, like a time capsule of yeah. how I thought the movie should be then. So basically what I'm saying is you're never going to see a Star Wars special edition like thing from Terry Gilliam. <laughs> That's right. He's not going to put in CGI fucking no, Star No extra do-backs in the background. No. <laughs> Maybe one extra do-back. Just one do-back running down the street when he's... Uh, it chases him when he's on his way up to that fake I, door. So I feel like the Star Wars special editions are something he probably detests. Oh yeah, there's no doubt. So there's one more clip from this documentary I want to play, and it's him talking about the reception his movie got when it came out, because there's pretty mixed reviews. Mm. And it's just kind of an interesting way he talks about the way they were written. Every film I do seems to get incredibly mixed reviews, and this one must have been worse because it, there was such a build-up amongst the you know, critics and everybody, an expectation of something so extraordinary that the fight was worth the fight. 
And what was interesting is the number of critics who obviously didn't like the film immediately said, well, the studio should have done what it, the studio should have done. I mean, the, the studio backed down, and yet it was, it, that's what to me was the big shock, the speed with which they shifted from the filmmaker to the studio being right because they didn't like the film. Now that's, that's a leap that is, is, you know, one doesn't necessarily follow the other. But, and then you begin to think, well, these people are really, hmm, we know where their hearts really lie. And it was, Variety in particular was, I think, was pretty nasty. They, they were, they didn't like it and they felt that the studio should have really got in there and got the scissors in there. And what nobody ever talked about was the fact that the studio was trying to change the film, change the nature of the film. It's one thing to say it's too long, it's another thing to say, yeah, that the uh, we yeah, let's go with the studio's idea of what the film should be, um, and I found that that was you know shocking. So yeah, these reviews are saying it, it's a, it's a there's a disconnect there, because they're saying, well yeah maybe Universal should have done their fucking hack job on this movie, and Terry Gilliam is saying, well no, it's not that they wanted to hack it, it's that they wanted to change it. Like this is why I always appreciate more a bad movie that has no interference, that is a clearly someone's vision. It's like you know what. I don't like Sucker Punch, but it's clearly Zack Snyder. Oh, it is straight from Zack Snyder's brain. It is Zack Snyder. So would I want someone coming in and kind of fucking with that and sh making a happy ending or changing? Not really. I don't know that you could. I, w I wouldn't mind <laughs> if someone else made the movie, but I don't think it's good to set that precedent to, to mess with someone's shit. We both really don't like that movie, but there's a lot of people that really do like that movie. And yeah, and I would try to avoid them, but... That's all well and good. I'm just saying, like, I don't think, like, artistic vision is such an important thing. Yeah, absolutely. Whether Even when it goes bad. Whether it's good or bad. And I'm sure there, I haven't seen every Terry Gilliam fi film, and I'm sure there are a couple of ones, probably recent ones, that I wouldn't like as much. Yeah, there's some weird fucking Terry Gilliam films. But I wouldn't say, oh, fuck, I wish Universal had gotten in there and changed it to a fucking Love conquer Conquers All. Yeah, no. Um, and if you ever want to watch that version of the movie, it you is don't. available. You don't, but if you do want to watch it, it is available as part of the Criterion 3-disc uh, collection for this movie that I own. I own the original DVD version. I don't know if it's on Blu-ray. Brag. Brag, absolutely. But it, it is accompanied by a film commentary by a film historian who kind of walks you through the story of what happened with the movie and the cuts they made and all that sort of stuff. Well, listen, that is a lot of background, and I know it is, but we, we should... We, we'll dive into this movie now. We'll do a little bit more discussion. This is a long episode. I know. Thank you for sticking it through. Thanks, guys. We, I, I love this movie. I think Brendan enjoyed this movie. we got a lot to talk about. First thing I want to mention, casting-wise, mm -hmm. did you know that Robert De Niro was originally supposed to play Jack Lind? Huh. So, what had happened... Or not, I shouldn't say he was originally supposed to play Jack Lind, but Robert De Niro wanted a part of this. Yeah. You heard about the script. He's like, I want to. I'd love to play Jack Lint. Like that sounds like a role, the role to play. Yeah. And Terry Gilliam's like, Wow, do I really have to decline Robert De Niro? So he's like, I'm sorry, I already cast Michael Palin. He's who, a great friend. I've who, worked with there, him. There's nobody else in the world better for this role than Michael Palin because of who Michael Palin is, and he clearly, he clearly wrote this role with Michael Palin in mind. That's the thing. He did, and he said, I want Michael Palin for this role. I've worked with him many times. He's a dear friend. I promised him this part. But would you like to have a sort of a smaller but pivotal role as Harry Tuttle. And Rob Jr. was like, yes, of course, I'm in. So he was in. Um, now, I will say that this is a smart move. Like oh, you yeah. just said, if you have Robert De Niro as Jack Lind, and he turns out later to be kind of a, like a really dicey character, I, I don't think it's as much of a surprise. No, no, no. Because Robert De Niro's played characters like that many times throughout his life. I and mean, he's taxi, capable of it. Taxi Driver was years before this. How often has Michael Palin played a villain in a thing? I don't know if he ever has. King of Comedy was before this. Yeah. 
Raging Bull was before this. Yeah. Like, yeah, he in Mean Streets, like he's played hard edge. Taxi characters. Driver. That's what I said. I already oh, said, that. said that. <laughs> Jason and doesn't listen. What about Taxi Driver? God damn it, Raging Bull. <laughs> Fucking kill you. But yeah, Michael Palin. Wait, how many how many villains have you seen him play in his life? Yeah, I don't think any in, in movies. Not that I remember, anyways. Yeah, maybe Fierce Creatures. Yeah, maybe. Well, was he? I mean, he because he wasn't the villain in A Fish Called Wanda, which is on the list. Coming soon. Woohoo! We already kind of talked about the, the kind of the bureaucracy uh, in this movie. Everything is like sign this form, sign this form. You have to stamp it over here. Yep. You have to sign it over there. Very, uh, very satirical kind of takedown of bureaucracies. Which I mean, that's that shit's still still out there. It's, it's very much. It's like Monty Python mashed with 1984 by way of Douglas Adams. And actually, Douglas Adams would later go on. Uh, he was not involved in this, but. He, he's got a very similar sensibility to this movie, and he was involved in the, in the making of a video game, uh, 1987's Bureaucracy, which is a game where it's a text adventure, and, and you as the main character have to go file a form, and that's the whole point of the game, and the entire game is you trying to file this form and meeting different people and having to get different things and solving puzzles to get to a point where you can actually finally file this form. This actually sounds great. Yeah, it, it's, it's neat. Uh, I haven't actually played it. Uh, I think I played a little bit of it just to try it out, but text adventures from that era are very hard. <laughs> so, But I recommend checking it out, folks. Douglas so, Adams is one of the best. So another thing, too, that they... Um, that that holds up, because that's, like I said, that's still a very prevalent thing. Yeah, even today. Bureaucracy never dies. Another really prevalent thing that they, they discuss a lot is the terrorism thing. Yes. So throughout the movie, we're hearing lots of things about, uh, you know, there's there's terrorists or there's a bombing campaign. 13 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and terrorists are, they're basically trying to destroy our way of life. They're not into morals. And I'm like... Whoa! Yeah. This is George Bush. Yeah. This is like very like 2002, 2003. Especially as we never see anybody who is a confirmed terrorist in this movie, really, other than maybe Harry Tuttle. But he's not. He, he's but not what does he do? Stuff up. He just doesn't sign the forms. Yeah, that's what. That's his terrorist action. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and maybe we should listen to a little bit of the beginning of the movie because this is the t- this is on the TV that's playing when the uh, <laughs> Mr. Um, Mr. Heltman Heltman is talking about the terrorist situation. Uh, the, the very first thing he says, why, why does terrorism happen? This is one of my favorite lines in this movie. What do you believe is behind this recent increase in terrorist bombings? Bad sportsmanship. A ruthless minority of people seems to have forgotten certain good old-fashioned virtue. They just can't stand seeing the other fellow win. If these people had just play the game, they'd get a lot more out of life. Nevertheless, Mr. Helpman, there are those who maintain that the Ministry of Information has become too large and unwieldy. David, in free society, information is the name of the game. You can't win the game if you're a man short. And the cost of it all, Deputy Minister, 7% of the gross national product. I understand this concern on behalf of the taxpayer. People want value for money. And that's why we always insist on the principle of information retrieval charges. It's absolutely right and fair that those found guilty should pay for their periods of detention and for the information procedures used in their interrogation. Do you believe that the government is winning the battle against terrorists? Oh, yes. Our morale is on time there. We're fielding all their strokes, running a lot of them out, and pretty consistently knocking them for six. So, and also, I should mention, at that time, that's also the scene where the bug gets caught in the machine. Yeah. So that's what you're hearing in the that's background. That's why there's a buzzing, yes. Yeah. It's not us uh, It's not us buzzing. No. Not yet. So, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is what I took from the movie. 
the bombing or the heating ducts malfunction. Yeah. Right? I think that's what it comes down to. Yeah, it seems I think to be. These heating ducts, because we should mention that I don't think we really talked about this too much, but no. everything's connected with these ducts. This, the, the ducting that Central Services um, provides and maintains is a feature of everything. Like, and, and you think because about Because the air is terrible. The air is terrible. Yeah. In fact, at some point, and some of you Canadians out there will remember a TV. PSA that involved a person using a, what looked like a phone booth to take oxygen. A guy does this in this movie, yeah, similar thing. It's like a fresh air booth. Yeah, so they've got this ducting everywhere and it's all like part of the rooms. Like it's not hidden, like ducting is, you know, nowadays in buildings. It's just prominent. It's but, like in the center of the room, just a forest of ducks coming out and going everywhere. But they have, a, yeah, a mummy and a baby duck. Yes. <laughs> but they have all these, uh, they have all these advertisements too about like, oh, beautify your duct and like, yeah. you know. <laughs> So it's it's a lot of that. Um, so despite this threat of terrorism that I think only Mr. Hellman really thinks is, well, I know he knows what's going on, but mm. he he presents it as like a very big threat. A lot of people aren't really bothered by it unless they're caught in the in the midst of it. Because like you said, we talked about the restaurant scene where everybody just kind of like sits yeah. there. There's and, people rolling around the floor, missing limbs, bleeding, screaming, uh, just just it's the chaos of a bombing, and everybody else is pretending they're not even there and continuing with their meals. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to. I want to mention the, obviously the technology stuff. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned it's a good, it's a mixture of like old and new. It's There's, a retro futuristic is what you would call it. Even that, in 1985. Is that the actual term? Well, that's, that's the term for the aesthetic. Like if you think to like, if you made a movie today, like, like so for instance, the rocketeer, you, you know that movie. It's got this very... You've ever seen that? The yes. Disney Rocketeer? Yeah. So it's got this very Art Deco styling, very 40s, but it also has this... Uh, it's it's a vision of a futuristic technology from the perspective of the 40s. So he's got this crazy jetpack with a helmet and everything. It's not something that exists. And You're talking and, about the movie, right? Yeah, in The, in yeah. the Rocketeer. It's like... Yeah. It, it, it's That, that jetpack is not something that exists... And if it ever does, probably not in that form, but that's what the view was from the 40s. So it's like the, the previous generation's visions of the future then writ out in the future. But you're talking about the 90s movie. Yeah. Okay, okay. I thought you were doing like a 40s No, 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 no. What I'm saying is that that is playing it like... I know what you mean. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's using that perspective of a 40s thing. It's a 90s movie. Yeah. It's retro-futuristic. And not to brag, but uh, I met Billy Campbell. He's a really nice guy. Billy Campbell. Who was it? Oh yeah, right. He was in that movie you were in. He was the Rocketeer. Uh, he wasn't. I didn't meet him on the set of that movie. No, uh, not the Rocketeer. I didn't meet him <laughs> on the set of the other movie. Yeah, but I met him at the uh, film festival in town. Here. Oh, nice. Yeah, he's very nice. Very nice. What was he in? Wh- what? What movie was he in that he was there for? He was in the movie that I was in. Oh, he was in Copperhead. Yeah, he was. Oh. In, I like how I was being so secretive about. Yeah, it yeah. No, look it up, folks. You'll see Brendan in the background somewhere. Oh, during the scene where the people are uh, marching off to war, I am in the background doing some smell the fart acting. <laughs> hey, good job. Thanks. Um, and and like you also said too, uh, we also mentioned earlier, the technology in this movie is never working, no. never fu- <laughs> never fully functional. You've got the computer screens. That never seemed to work right. Well, and it's playing old movies. Mm. Uh, they tricky in home. He thinks that the computer's malfunctioning and playing old movies, but clearly his workers are just watching old movies. Yeah, they've movies. just hacked it themselves to play old movies so that they don't have to endure the terrible, like, the misery of their lives. I mean, the bug that landing in the thing and fucking up Harry Tuttle's name. Yeah. The alarm clock that gets stuck on a certain time, he whacks it and he's like, oh, it's 11 o'clock, okay. I kind of have to wonder if, if this if this failure, this terrible technology is actually a function of this society in the sense that perhaps this technology not working very well means that you then have to employ more people to repair it uh, and keep it. But clearly they've, they've, they've blown past uh, uh, the tipping point because now they're always backed up and <laughs> never have enough people to actually fix everything. Yeah. 
like I said, so many things in this movie hold up today. Like, there's the people's obsession with plastic surgery. Mm-hmm. That's still very much a thing. You have Mrs. Terrain, the older woman that's just, like, deteriorating, yeah. like, more and more and more because she's getting, like, the worst kind of plastic surgery. And you have the opposite side of that with uh, Sam's mother just looking younger and younger and younger and just being obsessed with that. Not being happy and looking great and still being like, oh, no, we got to do more. <laughs> yeah, and all and always being like, oh, do you need this? I know people. I can get you. I get you here. I can yeah. get you there. We talk about the design work of this movie, yeah, it's, it's, and how it probably took eighty-two years because there's so much detail. It's very intricate. the The backgrounds in this movie, uh, uh, the apartments, like it's all it's, everything is full of stuff. I mean, if you're used to Terry Gilliam, it's not surprising. But then that's contrasted by like certain scenes when you go into the ministry right, building, yeah. right? And it's very stark and like door, 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 just down a hallway of doors, and and you know. Very yeah, it, brutalist. It doesn't. It doesn't commit the crime that a lot of a lot of intricate movies do by over designing. No, it, it it it's heavily designed when it needs to be, but it's also heavily like Stark when it needs to be, like Tony Stark. And that's and that's kind of helping separate like what's outside the ministry uh, and the government from what's inside. Where yeah, the government is very inside and orderly, and it's this projection of image, and then outside it's just a mess. It's it's cold. Yeah, inside it's very, very cold. cold. Uh, there are some there are some signs that I noticed that I wanted to point out. One of them was top security holiday camps, <laughs> and the tagline was luxury without fear, fun without suspicion, relax in a panic free atmosphere. <laughs> Very nice. I enjoyed in the in the beginning of the movie. There's a sign uh, like a propaganda poster on the wall that says uh, loose talk is noose talk. <laughs> That's <laughs> harsh. <laughs> um, there's also one that says like. Suspicion is... Suspicion breeds confidence? That's the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I also like um, that we see people uh, protesting at some point for a brief second. Their signs say, Consumers for Christ. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're marching down the street. Yeah. I uh, love the idea of these big billboards blocking the highway. We talked about that. Gilliam made another excellent call with something else. We talked about the technology being retro-futuristic, but so was the fashion. Yes. The fashion. They're wearing these slickers, yeah. these top hats, the suits. Everyone's in suits. There, there's a, there's a, I mean, and it's clear. You just watch the movie, but there's a real film noir vibe to it. Yeah. It's got the, with the, yeah, the suits and hats and oh. the ladies dressed up. And oh, the, yeah. If you didn't have the futuristic stuff, this is a film noir. Very much 100%. so. hundred percent. Actually, you might even say it is a film it's noir. It's a weird sci-fi film noir punctuated by... Weird silent comedy moments. I would almost like be okay with people saying this is film noir. Yeah, it is absolutely, it, totally. It's film noir. It, it definitely it's, inspired a movie like Dark City later on. Yeah, uh, it's film noir. It's satire. It's comedy. It's it's uh, depressing drama yes. at times, but done in a way where you're not just like you don't want to like punch yourself. While it really is a roller coaster in the sense that it is the constant stream of emotions. Yes. Another part of the design we can mention is that uh, along with the ducks, there's also a lot of pneumatic tubes. If if you've ever been to an old bank. Uh, uh, that was how they used to send things around the building was yeah. they would put the put them in the air tubes and they would just shoot around and so that is the main method of sending documents back and forth in this world and I guess it's instant or it's pretty damn it's, quick it's, well for that I, I don't think that in real life it's actually quite that fast but he sends something up uh, to get rid of it and it immediately comes back with a note in it yeah and that's <laughs> when he kind of freaks out and puts the hooks up the friggin' pipes to both of them. Yeah, so that it does it, a very, again, silent film kind of comedy bit. Yeah. It's like, oh, I'll just connect the two, and then it, zoom, 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 oh, and then like it explodes. It. This has to be inspired by silent film oh, and yeah, Warner it, Brothers cartoons. Cool. So cool. I think Absolutely. those are the two main things. Yeah. Um, I also like, there's there's a real uh, cool moment where Sam first sees Jill, and how does he first see Jill in the real world? He sees her in the reflection of a broken mirror. Yep. 
And that is what this movie is about. This movie is like broken reality, mm. like fragmented reality. We don't know what's real for a good portion We're of it. We're holding up a broken mirror to our own society. Exactly. Thank you, uh... Old British, old British film expert. Man. <laughs> That's what this film is about. Uh, and it also acts as like foreshadowing for later on when he is comp- his own reality is completely distorted because he has either gone insane or been lobotomized. I think he's been lobotomized because I'm pretty sure Michael Palin sticks like a pick up his nose. Yeah, it, th- that would seem to be the most thing. I, I also had the thought that it's possible that... Much like Sucker Punch. Much like Sucker Punch. <laughs> uh, my thought, though, is that, that because... I, I look at it from a different way. I, I think it's possible that Michael Palin did him a mercy, whether he lobotomized him or whether he maybe even OD'd him on some sort of drug. Yeah. Um, he did him a mercy. Rather than torture him, he just fucked him up so that he would be kind of free without having to endure the pain that Michael Palin would nor or that Jack would normally deliver in this situation. Well, and you got to think too. Because if yeah. you, and, and too, if you remember the, uh, the scene with the receptionist, uh, um, uh, transcribing the interrogation sessions, and he just and says, it's like, ah, Ooh. Oh no, please don't, please don't. Ow. Yeah. Well, and it's and noted uh, during the fantasy sequence, like once Michael uh, Michael Palin, Jack Lint, whatever, gets shot in the head, which we know doesn't actually happen. Mm. As they're running out, they do cut briefly to the woman typing out the transcripts, mm-hmm. and there's nothing mentioned about Harry Tuttle. There's nothing mentioned about that. It's just him getting tortured. Yeah. So you're like. That's I think that's one clue that this is not actually what's I, happening. I thought that that said it had like like blam. <laughs> like bang maybe but that could have been anything that could have been anything that's true something getting knocked over or something that's true um but there's nothing about oh my god harry you're here yeah um okay can we can we talk about the dreams the dreams in this yes. movie what is going on here that's a manifestation that's kind of a, 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 I think it's a symbol of what sam's mind is going through like he's he's trying to escape this world it's escapism for him these dreams it's it's his mind wandering and trying to find a, a better existence and it, it manifests itself as this ridiculous flying fantasy with the girl as the prize, and he wants to get the girl. It's all very simple, but it's like, it's the one thing, it seems to be something that keep, is keeping Sam going, like, that keeps him positive, because there's really nothing else positive around him. I mean, the only positive thing he's found is he's found a job that he's not bad at, and that kind of keeps him off people's radar, uh, and that he eventually has to lose, of course, for the promotion to get the information. The, the only thing I don't understand about this whole dream thing, though, is that in his dream, the girl that is there is yeah. clearly Jill. Yeah. It is the same actress. It's yes. clearly here with long hair. But this is and this is before he sees her in real life. Yes. So what is going on there? That That is a question that will reside in the file with why does Sean Connery have a picture of Uma Thurman on his wall at the beginning of The Avengers? <laughs> but, I, but unlike that movie, <laughs> I think Terry Gilliam has a reason in this one. Yeah, I mean... And I don't know, I don't know if he's trying to suggest that maybe he's trying to alter our reality. Like, well, how much of this is real? How much of this is in his head? Like, you, like maybe, maybe she doesn't look like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe she only looks like that to him. Yeah. But then now, no, because that's no, that doesn't make sense because he sees her on the TV monitor. Unless yes. that's unless that's just him that's seeing her like that. Or maybe he's projecting her like like it's like he has this vision of a woman in his dreams and he sees her and she fits enough of the profile that he thinks it's her. Yeah. But then, like you told me off air before we recorded this episode, there are scenes of her interacting yes. with people. Yeah, so, so she's not a to- total t- uh, Bruce Willis. So yeah. It could be a Tyler Durden situation where he's projecting these interactions from himself. There's also, I more I more buy into the theory that Harry Tuttle is not real before I believe that Jill is not That's real. That's true, because who else actually sees Harry Tuttle besides him? Jill. 
Oh, she does right. That's right. But yeah, exactly. If that's, you know. It's getting weird. It's getting yeah. weird. Uh, Harry Tuttle's almost like a manifestation of everything he wants to be. Yeah, right? that's true. Fight, like, not signing these forms, fighting he, against the system yeah, a little he, bit. He, 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 Harry says, you know, I got into this game for the excitement. Yeah. And it's like, that's what Sam wants, the excitement. He literally has a grappling hook. Yeah. He's out and he's and he's helping people. He's doing it. He's just fucking doing it. He doesn't have to go through any bureaucracy, any red tape. There's no passing of the buck. He's just responsible for himself and he fucking does it. And that's so contrary to everything that Sam is taught with the system. Yeah, he's an action hero. Yeah. Nero plays an action hero. Well, he's an action hero in the sense that he's somebody who is co- actually doing action, who's actually moving forward and doing something. Yeah. <laughs> There's also some Freudian things here I want to talk about when, when Sam sees his mother and she looks exactly like Jill. If yeah. we're to believe that that's in his head, I don't know what's going on with that, Yeah, Jason. that says a lot. That says a lot about his psyche. But he's also in a real bad spot there. It's a, a, a could be a drug-induced haze. Mm-hmm. Probably is a drug-induced haze. Or a lobotomy. Uh, just a couple of other little things. Um, the character Harvey Lime. I wonder if that's a reference to Harry Lime, who's the character Orson Welles plays in The Third Man. Which is the number one movie number on Number one list. movie on the BFI. So we'll get to Harry Lime eventually. Yeah, it'll probably be, end up being the last yeah, one. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, I don't yep. get into our opinions quite yet till the end, but I don't have anything else about specifically about the movie, if you have any other things you want to mention. Oh, uh, when they go into the foundry to pick up the house, there's a group of guys in, in suits playing volleyball. <laughs> yeah. In the, I don't in know. Full... That was the same year Top Gun came out, so who knows? <laughs> I, I like to think Let's. that was although he probably filmed it before Top Gun came out play it play it with the boys Top Gun Maverick coming That's soon right. so oh I love and, and when when Sam first gets in the truck and or and he, and he threatens her and he points his fingers at her like it's a gun and then he's like ah oh, shit and he puts it in his pocket like, like he's holding a gun in the pocket <laughs> so good such again silent comedy or silent film shit I love it silent comedy silent but deadly comedy yep um and yeah i mean i think we hit just about everything uh this movie is is something we'll get to it all right so this movie goes to the oscars Mm -hmm. however it's only nominated for two awards doesn't win a damn thing screenplay and best supporting actor for robert de niro (laughs) no best original screenplay Mm -hmm. yes and best art direction at the baftas it wins two awards it wins Best Production Design and Best Visual Effects. Sure, yeah. So, it's a movie that gets mixed reviews at the time. It's one of those movies we look back on. I mean, if you go on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 98%. Yeah. Like, it's clearly a movie that critics know and love now. And I think just the situation at the time, the fact that it was so hyped up after this big battle, the fact that, yeah. you know, people were saying it was the greatest thing ever. Kind of, It's kind of like, yeah. like a Titanic reaction. Yeah. When everybody talks about how great they, how much they love Titanic, and then you go see it, and you're like, oh, it was good. Yeah, it's fine. But most people, you know, you get a lot of reactions too where people just want to upset the status quo and they're like, oh, Titanic's a piece of garbage. Yeah. And it was not, it was a fine movie. It was a good movie. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. This uh, this is a movie that has proven itself to have a very long shelf life. And because we've talked about a lot how it's still, still as relevant today as it ever was. Yeah. And will probably continue being so even deep into the future. I agree. Unless things start changing around this dump. That's right. So, Jason, Brazil is number 54 on the BFI Top 100. How do you feel about that spot so far? I mean, we've talked about 25 other movies. I, I think it's a good spot for it. Uh, I would probably personally place it higher, but think that's, I, higher? I think that's probably a good spot for it, right in the middle of the pack. Now, I I, I like this movie a lot. Yeah. It's a very good movie. 
Now, there's one other time that we were going to watch a movie that you had seen and loved and I had not seen. That yeah. was Bridge on the River Kwai. And Absolutely. you told me, oh my god, Brian, you're going to love this movie. <laughs> and I did. Uh, it's near the top of my list. I think it's the top for the first half anyway. Yeah. I wasn't quite that about Brazil, mm-hmm. but I did like it a lot. Yeah, it was a good movie. It's really good. I adore it, this movie. It's. Uh, I had a great time watching it. I had a great time watching it the second time. I had a more confusing time watching it the first the first time. Yes, absolutely. Um, but that second watch, I'm sure, allowed you to drink in a lot of the the more visual aspects of it and, and the production design and all the wonderful sets. Yes, I will say that I get why it was a tough sell. Mm-hmm. I totally understand that. I don't. It's I mean, a weird fucking movie, folks. Yeah, we talked about the whole Universal redoing it. I don't agree with that. No, that, um, that version's not good. It's not a good version of anything. It's not good to impede on anyone's art, good or bad. Yeah. I'm just gonna say that. But at the same time, and I, and like I get the people that don't like it, I I understand why they wouldn't I, I like can, it. Yeah, exactly. I can I get can it. Why it's see not their the bag. criticism. I don't share the criticism, but I can see the criticism. But I feel like too, if somebody did like this movie, chances are they're not going to like most of Terry Gilliam's other movies. You think so? Yeah, he's got a very weird approach to his movies. You think if they like this, they won't like? No, no. I'm looks? saying, I'm saying, if they don't like this movie, oh, yeah, they, yeah, they're yeah. probably not going to like a lot of his other stuff. I There's, think his most accessible I mean, is Twelve Monkeys. Twelve. Well, Really? Accessible? Didn't he do The Fisher King? Wasn't that a big hit with Robin Williams? Wait, you're saying you don't like 12 Monkeys? No, I like 12 oh, Monkeys, okay. but tw- but it's the most accessible? I would say. That's a very weird movie. <laughs> I mean, sure, but I mean, it's still pretty, like, I don't know. I, okay, if you want to get if you want to get down to it, The Brothers Grimm is probably his most accessible. You, you might be right there. Uh, I might be crazy, or it just might be a lunatic you're, you're looking, looking for. for. Tideland's a weird movie. Fear and Loathing might be his most accessible I movie. I disagree strongly. Everybody knows what a drug trip is like. Mm. Time Bandits is good. It's weird. Not as weird as Brazil. It's more it's, it's more acceptable for children, I suppose, but not necessarily for children. Okay, well, what I'm trying to say is that <laughs> not all his movies are as uh, tough as Brazil. No, no, certainly not. So I will say, yeah, 54, um, I'm feeling okay about it. I agree with you that I think I would maybe at this time place it higher. I we haven't seen a lot of these movies yet, so I don't know how high, but uh, starring uh, Method Man. But, um, yeah, I think it probably is going to be a little bit higher for me. I liked it a lot. It was a great movie. Yeah, I, I've adored this movie for years. I, I've been, you know, I, I discovered this movie because I was a huge Monty Python fan. So, obviously, I wanted to watch as much stuff as, as I could. And sometimes that got me Brazil, which is a fucking masterpiece as far as I'm concerned. And sometimes that got me Yellowbeard starring Graham Chapman, which is not a very good movie at all. And the only funny scene in the movie was where a little girl walks around and goes, Piece of shit for a farthing! Who wants to buy a piece of shit for a farthing? It's kind of like how the only funny scene in Dumb and Dumber er, is Bob Saget saying, There's shit shit everywhere! everywhere. It's all over the walls! Yeah. Dumb (laughs) and Dumber er, same movie as Yellow. Watch that scene on YouTube and forget that movie ever happened because I'm sure you already have. Yeah. I I mentioned it and they're like, Oh, the the sequel with Jim Carrey? I'm like, No. The prequel. That he wasn't even in. So that's gonna wrap. That's gonna wrap it up on Brazil. Watch this fucking movie. Watch it. It's easy. To, it's pretty easy to find. It's yeah. out there. Get the Criterion edition. Watch it all. Go rent it on YouTube. Do whatever you got to do. I'm pretty sure on YouTube it's the two hour twenty two minute version, or at least the two hours and twelve minute version. The American. I'm not sure. Did you ever figure out what the differences were between that and the one hundred thirty two minute version that were released? I think there's a few more clouds in the, that I think, release. I don't think there's a whole lot. I think the, I think the end, the ending still the same. Yeah. Oh no, it is the same ending. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um. So. Yeah, that'll do it for Brazil. Let's put a cap on that. Now, Jason, normally at this point, we roll the dice. Mm-hmm. People are freaking out. They're like, oh, no. 
Are they doing another, <laughs> another sequel summer? Sequels? Summer sequels! Woo! No, we're not doing another sequel summer. But uh, Jason is going to be away yes. for a couple weeks. He is going to tie the knot. That's right. He's getting married. Ladies, back off to me. I'm getting hitched. Yes, Brendan and I are getting <laughs> married. The first, the first married podcasting couple. The nobody else. No, before no us. one has ever done that. Keith and the girl. Fuck you. You're divorced now. It doesn't matter. How did this get what? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, so Jason and I are getting married. And uh, so for the next two weeks, I'm actually, I have another podcast, I'm sure you, some of you know. It's called What Were They Thinking? It's about bad movies, bad to questionable movies. So for the next two two weeks, I'll be airing uh, two, two of the episodes that Jason was actually a guest Classic on. reruns. Yeah. But for maybe, maybe some of you don't know what that podcast is. So you can listen to the next couple weeks, see if you like it. And then go to what were they thinking? See, we kill two. We kill a number of birds with this stone. We we, we get two weeks off so I can go get married. Uh, Brendan doesn't have to do a huge amount of additional work, and he gets to promote his other podcast. That's right. So if you like it, check out the other podcast again. That is going to be the next two episodes, and then we will come back. So we're going to wait a couple weeks to roll the dice. That's right. But with that being said, find us on Facebook. Search for us for Screen and Country. Uh, we're on Twitter. I am exhausted. Yeah, it's, been a lo- it's very hot, and it's been a long <laughs> podcast. Uh, we're on Twitter at BFI underscore pod. You can find Jason on Twitter. At Jason D. McLeod. That's M-A-C-L-E-O-D. Where he just talks about trade policies of the country of Brazil. That's all, my, that's all it's about. Yeah. Interspersed with, with links to that song. Yes. Uh, the, the Hokey Pokey. And you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. That is what it's all about. And that's what it's all about, folks. But Jason, I don't know how long this episode is right now, actually, but we've been here over two hours, so I just have to say to you, God save the queen. God save the screen. And for screening country, I'm Brendan. And I'm Jason. Oh, before you go, Jason, I just need you to sign here. Okay. And -hmm. uh, just initial here. Initial there. Sign there. Right there. Sign there. And here. Kiss there. Mm -hmm. Okay, stamp there. Okay, I need your left testicle. And just cut here. Ow. That's okay. Just sign there. And initial there. Any questions? I'm feeling kind of woozy. Oh, then just sign there. Uh, punk. Try!